What's up, fools? This is the QTR Podcast. Today is June 6, 2020. Happy that you guys are here with me today on a Saturday morning that I think is going to be an interesting one. I'm stoked about it, and I'm stoked that you guys suggested my guest today. First and foremost, I want to shout out my patrons. Patrons are people that make this podcast possible. They're the people that donate a monthly recurring sum to help support the podcast. I'm going to shout them out. I'll give you the two rules for the podcast, and then we will be on our merry way down the rabbit hole. First and foremost, I want to shout out my exclusive gold and silver providers over at JM Bullion. I love JM Bullion. I've been using them for about a month and a half now. They are the only gold and silver supplier that I will buy from. They have great inventory, great stock. They're nice people to deal with. They have done over $3 billion in business since they founded a little over a de- a little less than a decade ago, excuse me. So they have just been absolutely kicking ass and they have a great reputation which is well deserved. They ship at least in my experience, next day or very quickly. And uh, they're just wonderful to do business with. They've been my favorite gold and silver bullion supplier to buy from, uh, not even close. And I've bought from other sites. Uh, I was actually buying from other sites exclusively before I knew JM Bullion. So QTR podcast listeners have their own exclusive sales rep there too. You can email Kathy with a K at jmbullion.com. She would be more than happy to assist you in all of your gold and silver bullion needs. Because folks, at some point, the whole system is going to burn to the ground. Maybe our guest today can help us understand when and why. This podcast is also brought to you by my friend Pete Hedgetis over at The Trader's Path. The Trader's Path is... Nothing more than a trading, day trading, investor service, and community that is pretty much going to take over the world at this point. Pete Hedget has started the trader's path because he was working with people that were doing other trading services, other day trading services, uh, other investing communities, and he didn't like it. He thought it was dishonest. He thought they were disingenuous. He thought that they were front-running people. He thought they were out to steal people's money. So he said, I'm going to start my own honest day trading service. And that's what he did with The Trader's Path. The Trader's Path offers you live watch lists on a daily basis. Uh, So you're going to get all the information they're looking for uh, on a day-to-day basis, a live stream of everything they're doing. They trade red markets, green markets. Uh, They offer investor education. And it's just a great community of people to have around you while you go through your trials and tribulations of day trading. Most importantly, uh, the guy that runs it is, is an honest guy who I am happy to have as a podcast supporter and happy to see his site start to uh, take shape and his service start to do well. So if you ever considered it, check out The Trader's Path. Look at my buddy Pete. Tell him you want a discount because you're a QTR podcast listener and he'll take care of you. This podcast is also brought to you by my dear friends over at the Sang Lucci Steam Room. Man, Sang Lucci and Wall Street Jesus have been OGs in the investing world for the last 10 years. They were one of the first services, if not the first, to identify option sweepers. In fact, Wall Street Jesus coined the term sweepers. He did it with the steam room. So you ever wonder where the call sweep, put sweep term came from? That is an OG term created by Wall Street Jesus and used in the Sang Lucci steam room. What is the steam room? The steam room is a piece of software online, a aesthetically beautiful piece of software that is going to tell you when big money comes in and out of the options market. This is important because oftentimes it can help with telegraphing moves in the equities market. So basically looking where market flow is going, looking for the money is coming in is a lucrative strategy. The steam room, these guys have been doing it for a decade now. They are experts at it. Um, it's different than most sites, normal, unusual options activity. The steam room is proprietary and, uh, Sang Lucci's the best. 
He is. You know, these guys are good guys. They're honest guys. They post their losses and their wins online. And just wonderful people to know and a a friend of mine that I can easily recommend. Lucci also offers a master course in investing education. If you ever want an investor education without the bullshit and financial jargon that comes with, uh, you know, idiots in suits and ties. And he offers a 3LT playbook, which are three simple rules that he used to make himself into a seven-figure trader. All the links to all this shit are in my podcast description. Contact any of these guys. Tell them you know QTR and tell them you want a discount and they'll get it taken care of. This podcast is also brought to you by my friends over at Corvus Gold, Robert Micello, Jay Mincemeyer, Russ Valenti, Nicholas Parks, Nathan Michaud at Investors Underground and Traders for a Cause, Chris Bede, Ken R., Crichton Titus, Will Smith, Michelle Koenig, Dylan Davis, Ken, J.K. Cunningham, and Stank Love, and also some of my newest patrons, people that have signed up to support the podcast recently. Mr. Dan242, what's up, brother? How are you? My friend Matthew Donahue, my friend Q, David Harvey is in the house, Warren Marshborn's in the house, Matt Malecki, Antrim Investment Research, and how about some people that have been patrons for a while, like Lisa Hyatt, I appreciate your continued support, Lisa. Daniel Rust, Voltiface Investments is still in the house, thank you. My friend Harrison is still with me. Uh, Ray Cadillac is still with me, which I appreciate. Jean Goulet, also my friend Michael Kantowski, Brendan Illis. Thank you guys so much for your continued support. This podcast has a two-drink minimum. It's Saturday morning, so if you want to make a mimosa, just letting you know, if you take orange juice and champagne, combine them into one, that is not meet the two-drink minimum. We have strict rules. That counts as one drink. And basically the way you make a mimosa is you fill a glass with champagne and then you take a shot of vodka and chug the glass of champagne and I don't know you put the orange juice back in the fridge and that's how you fucking make a mimosa so I do recommend a two drink minimum finally before we get started this podcast is not investment advice life advice you should not listen to anything that I say anything my guests say I disclaim everything that I say I'm not an investment advisor I hold no licenses I hold no registrations I am by no means an expert and we are here folks just for the purposes of open discussion and having an open-minded conversation trying to figure out what the fuck is going on because really I don't have a clue and some days I root for the asteroid other days I just like to get to the bottom of things all right I am really stoked to have uh, Max Kaiser with me this morning and uh, and I think his uh, his other half is also with him as well. I'm not sure if she's staying for the podcast, but she's more than welcome to. Uh, so anyways, I'll read Max's bio here real quick, and then I'll, I'll talk about how he wound up on the podcast today. Uh, Max is an American broadcaster and filmmaker. He hosts the Kaiser Report on RT. I don't know why, why it seems like everybody that I enjoy seeing in the mainstream media winds up on RT. We'll have to discuss it at some point. Um, he's huge into Bitcoin and uh, huge into gold from what I was able to discern over the last 24 hours doing a little bit of my research on him. Um, Anchored on the Edge, which is a program of news and analysis hosted by Iran's press television. Now, I reached out to Max yesterday, kind of on a whim. Actually, Max reached out to me uh, because I had to cancel my podcast today with Dave Collum. And sometimes the world and the universe just presents you with things. My listeners were imploring me to have Max on not unlike other guests I've had, like Whitney Webb, I have found some really wonderful people to speak to just by recommendation of my listeners. And after being on the phone with Max here for a, a roughly 10 seconds before we started the podcast, I already feel like I'm very happy that he's on with me because he came to the phone this morning singing 
And uh, and how the hell are you, Max Kaiser? What's going on, brother? <laughs> yeah, it's it's good, man. Uh, thanks for having me on. I saw you on Twitter. You had a cancellation. And uh, I follow you on Twitter. I've been following you for a while. I like your tweets. That's the only thing I know about you. Uh, but I saw you had a cancellation, so I said, hey, you know, I'm available, and that's how this all got started. Yeah, well, first off, I appreciate that. Thank you very much for uh, reaching out to do that. That was very cool. And, you know, we were going to have a little introductory pre-podcast chat, and I said, let's just not do it. Let's see what happens when you take two people that have never talked before. And I really, other than what I've read about you and, and the small blurb that you sent me yesterday, I don't really know that much about you. But you dabble in subjects that I find interesting, so I am interested to get your take on really the whole shit show as it exists today. <laughs> so what, maybe you want to talk to my listeners that don't know much about you and talk about kind of where you got your start and and what you do and, and what you're known for. Right. Well, you mentioned, you know, the universe provides uh, at the top of the show. And that's been my my motto, really, my whole life. And uh, going back all the way back to 1979, when I was going to New York University, I decided to just like say, fuck it, I'm moving to Harlem. So I moved to 145th Street and Broadway and lived uptown for four years and um, was really had an incredible education living uh, in Harlem. Uh, then I was doing some odd jobs to, you know, I worked my way through New York University. I picked up a job working for a stockbroker on Wall Street, and then I loved what I was seeing there. So in 1983, the second I got out of NYU, I started on Wall Street. So I was a, uh, a Payne Weber. I started my, my broker career. Uh, I was a broker for eight years. Then uh, in 1990, again, I had one of those fuck it moments where I said, fuck it, I'm just moving to Paris. And uh, I did that. I lived in Paris for five years, just uh, hanging out, basically, enjoying Paris, learning French, just meeting lots of people. You know, I'd done very well on Wall Street in the 80s, so I was just kind of independent, financially independent. And then I had another fuck it moment in 1995. My friend uh, Alec Baldwin was visiting Paris with his wife, Kim Basinger. And I pitched him on an idea for a screenplay. He sold it to Miramax the same day for a, for a pretty good amount of money. And I said, fuck it, I'm going to move to L.A. So I went to L.A. <laughs> yeah, we started making this movie. And then uh, once again, uh, you know, it's just the, the universe provided, right? So I met up with an old friend of mine from Wall Street. And uh, we were sitting around talking about how Los Angeles is very, very boring. Essentially, it's a one industry town. And uh, we came up with the idea for the Hollywood Stock Exchange. So we raised $40 million for the Hollywood Stock Exchange. We built it. Uh, I got a patent on a digital currency. So that's why ultimately my connection to, to Bitcoin is that I have uh, probably the only patent or the first patent on digital uh, scarcity uh, for the for the Hollywood for the uh, virtual specialist technology that I invented, and uh, then in 2001 we were all set to go public with Bear Stearns, and um, you know kind of had a fuck it moment again where Cantor Fitzgerald entered the picture. They wanted to take us over and uh, create cash box office features based on on the salt technology, so we they essentially bought us out. 
and they moved everything to the top floor of the World Trade Center just the two or three months before 9-11. Then 9-11 hit. They got wiped out. Uh, I moved back to France, uh, and this was now 2003. I met Stacy in 2003, and that starts really the last uh, period of Max and Stacy, and we've been doing content together. We're married. We uh, we entered we we do international television. We do a Kaiser Report. We before that we did BBC. We did Al Jazeera English. We traveled the world for 15, 16 years, just doing television and broadcast. We we started doing podcasting back in 2004, 2005. I think before there was even really a thing called podcasting. Just had an RSS feed. Uh, so we, we did a show in London. We lived in London for many years. We lived in Paris for many years. Uh, now we're back in the United States. So you're up to date. That's my current situation. Now in 2011, I should mention on the Kaiser Report, uh, we were uh, we had a guest on talking about Bitcoin when it was a dollar. And I immediately figured out that this was you know digital scarcity that I've been working on since the Hollywood Stock Exchange. So I started buying it. When it was a dollar and we started talking about it aggressively on the show, uh, you know, our show goes out to 100 countries. We have probably 30 million viewers a week. It's dubbed into Spanish. It gets another 30 million viewers. So a lot of people around the world first heard about Bitcoin from the Kaiser Report. A lot of people bought it. A lot of probably 100,000 or more Bitcoin millionaires we created because of the Kaiser Report and watching the Kaiser Report. And uh, let's see. I think that about brings us up to date. That um, <clears throat> that's pretty badass. I'm sitting here looking at a photo of you on your Wikipedia page where you're, you're sitting in the back of a taxi in London. It says 2007, and you got some luggage with you. And I got you. You just seem like one of those guys that I don't know. Sometimes like people have an ethos to them that you don't really need to know much about them. Like I knew this was going to be an interesting interview just from looking at this photo yesterday and like, I don't know, the name, the photo, the face you're making here, the story about kind of gallivanting all over the world. Um, you really sound like uh, a modern day Renaissance man. And uh, I'm really happy that you uh, decided to reach out and, and come on. Right. Well, like I said, it's just this, the ethos is that the universe provides, you know, petition the universe and the universe provides. The, the fact is that if you kind of stick to an ethos or you stick to a certain value system, um, there's nothing to worry about. Things just happen. Things, success comes, you know, not because you're chasing it, but because you, you never are not successful. You know, you're just basically successful and who, just being who you are. That you're, Everyone is born successful because they are born who they are. And don't chase success because uh, that's when generally you, it, it becomes elusive. Uh, and I've discovered that you just kind of be who you are and success always finds you. The universe is beautiful in this way. Yeah, and I found that not just in you know success as defined from a career or for instance, I started the podcast here because people that I liked listening to weren't getting enough airtime. You know, I wasn't listening to, I wasn't seeing Peter Schiff and Bill Fleckenstein and the guys that I like hearing from enough on the air. So I said, all right, I'm going to bring them on the air and do something. I didn't start it because I wanted to be, you know, a, a popular podcast or anything. I just wanted an opportunity to interview the people that I found interesting. And 
similarly, as you mentioned, the way that I look at life in general, especially as it comes to friendships and and relationships, um, romantic relationships specifically, is you have to you have to be yourself and you can't force things. You have to allow things to develop organically because the second you come off as reaching out and trying to actively take what isn't yours at the time, it creates some kind of imbalance, just just like you're talking about, right? If you if you really like a if you really like a woman, Max, you know, the 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 harder you go after her sometimes, a lot of times you know the the worse off you are, and certainly that doesn't. There's a there's an essence. There's a uh, there's a sanctity to a naturally developing relationship between two individuals. It's a it's a dance. It really is, and uh, and just as there is in any kind of relationship, and I I think your point there about the universe is just is spot on. Right. Well, I think that's one of the lessons I learned living in Harlem. Living uptown, this was late 70s, early 80s, so it was pretty violent up there. This is when a lot of uh, yeah, Colombian gangs were up there, and it was, it was gunshots, you know, heard all the time, really, every day. And it was a very violent place, but it's a, it was a great education because in the ghetto, basically, you are naked. You can't hide anything, and you have nothing, right. and you can't hide anything. So you really have to just be who you are. If you're not who you are, at that you will get beaten up essentially you will get pummeled you will get you know the 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 forces of 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 nature will will attack you you have to you have to find out who you are and then you have to be who you are and you have to you have to exude who you are you have to be completely authentic to survive in that situation and to thrive in that situation right so after having that education, it uh, it has kind of informed my my approach to things going forward. But you know that's it's tough because not everybody's willing to just strip themselves naked of everything right. and live in you know an alien place where they are the minority. You know, I was the minority. I was called once the crazy ass motherfucker that Reaganomics forgot. <laughs> and it's it's one of those situations too where if you surround yourself with people that are real, they can sniff out somebody that's not real immediately. You know, it, yeah. When, totally. when, when you're walking through the middle of Manhattan and life, you know, downtown, uh, and life's a big fucking fashion show, you know, then you can, you know, or you're walking through Vegas or New Orleans, uh, you know, you can kind of. You can go nuts. You can be whoever it is that you want to be in your imagination and, and not yourself. And nobody's going to notice because there, there's so many, you know, there's so many people out there trying to be something that they're not and trying to impress others for no reason. And But it's the situation like you're talking about or, you know, I lived in a neighborhood in South Philadelphia for a while where things were very similar. You know, if, if you're not going to be Max Kaiser... Somebody's going to call you out on that bullshit, right? Yeah, so exactly right. So it's a great education, and it's a great it's a great way to um, to to find uh, some security in being yourself. Because at the, the times of uh, of stress in one's life are are when one loses 
track of oneself. You know, if that even, I mean, that's kind of a, a, a weird sentence, but you know, if you can, if you know that you can just be thrown into a situation like that and thrive for four years, you know, it's hard to imagine, you know, you're just fine. So when I went to Paris, for example, in 1990, I didn't know anybody. I didn't know the language. I just parachuted in basically and just decided to, to see what happened. So I ended up staying there for five years. I learned French. I made lots of friends. You had a great old time. I learned another great lesson that you don't really need anything, particularly in France. You can live an incredible life in Paris for almost nothing because the way the city is designed, it's designed so that almost anyone can, can enjoy a quality of life that is superior to just about anywhere else in the world. The public transportation is super incredible, you know, great and cheap. The museums are open many nights or days, completely free. Uh, food, you know, you go to the markets when they close, you pick up bags of food for virtually nothing. Uh, the, the people in Paris are always getting together and, and, and for social events constantly. You have an incredible social life. Right. And you don't really it doesn't require any any money. That's why also in France, you know, there's this whole idea that um, it's completely opposite in, in the United States. People work to take a vacation. Right. And in France, it's <clears throat> the other way around. It's like they're vacationing always. And occasionally they have to do a little work, but they only work a little bit every once in a while so they can go back to being on vacation because they're primarily on permanent vacation. And work is seen as something that's an annoyance. I have to go do a little work, but I'll be back. And they, <laughs> they take no pride in work whatsoever. It's just something they do <laughs> to, to perpetuate their vacation, uh, right? And, um, and if once you spend five years there, as I did, you know, it's, 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 you just realize that, that that's a very uh, appealing lifestyle. Yeah, that's part of the reason why I love Montreal so much. I go to Montreal uh, often. And... I had kind of that same aha moment there one of my previous trips there where uh, I was waiting across the street with a group of people and the light was red but there was no traffic coming so I was like all right like well what the hell's everybody waiting for like let's just cross the street like there's no cars for miles in either direction and uh and everybody just kind of politely waited there and when the light changed everybody crossed the street together and I was like this is not fucking Manhattan. This is interesting. And uh, and I certainly get that same vibe there, which is they, you know, they they don't live to work. They work so that they can live. And uh, it's, you know, ec economically it's different when you look at things like taxation and things like that. But all the things that you just said about Paris, you know, with the the... They have a wonderful mass transit system in Montreal. They, there's just a vibe. The people are just nicer. And you can just tell. It's like people have dialed the intensity level down a little bit. And I've had some really wonderful, you know, productive moments there where I've been doing work, where I felt, you know, a great sense of calm. And I'm and I'm churning out work and enjoying it more than I've ever liked it. And I've, I've had some wonderful moments just walking down the street and just taking deep breaths and just you know i don't know man the the environment is just there, there's a much larger sense of calm there than there is in a city like new york right well yeah in paris for example the vibe on the streets very very different i would say it's a lot more laissez-faire than anywhere in the united states people are much more have to take responsibility for themselves 
because it's a legacy of Napoleonic law. So in France, it's a legacy of Napoleonic law. So, for example, if you get arrested, you're guilty until proven innocent. It's, of course, in the United States, it's the opposite. You're innocent until proven guilty. But in France, you're immediately assumed to be guilty. So if two people get into a fight on the street, they both are assumed to be guilty and go directly to prison, essentially. And um, this makes people very leery, very wary of getting into fights on the street. Right. So they have a lot more. They, 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 don't, they tend not to get into that situation. So if people will verbally yell at each other, you know, but you don't see a lot of fist, you know, punching and this type of thing. Uh, because of that, because the law is completely set up. You know, having said that, it's a country that's definitely more dominated by the state, right? So it is. Right, correct. And it, is, it is a mixed economy. It is more of what they, what's called a mixed economy. So the, the state is roughly 60% or 65% of GDP, maybe even as high as 70%. I think in the U.S. we, we say that the state's roughly 40, 45% of GDP. So it's less of a factor of the of the economy of the country. And um, so that that brings in a different sensibility. So in France, the it's not really, or in Great Britain as well, it's not really as entrepreneurial as, as uh, we have in the, in the States. There's still a stigma attached to failing. People don't want to fail because they get labeled a failure. It's, so in the States, it's uh, the other way around. You can fail you know, keep failing and failing and failing until you succeed. And that's not considered a, a negative against your character. That's considered to be, you know, uh, you, that you have perseverance and you are, um, you know, this, this is just a different way of looking at it. And this, they, in the, in the United States, I always make the compare. I always make the point that the, to understand the difference between Europe and the United States, you have to understand the difference between baseball and uh, soccer. So in soccer, it's a completely team sport. It's beautiful. It's low scoring, and it's all about teamwork. Uh, whereas in in baseball, it's all about individual achievement and hitting home runs. And it's really the only game, really, where you can win in the last inning by hitting the ball outside of the park. So it's like it's a it's a statement. It's an American statement that we win by breaking the law. We win by breaking the rules. There's nothing that can contain us. We can send the baseball outside of the playing park, and that's how we win, right? That's a very American thing to say. It's an Amer American thing to do. That's n you would never find that in Europe. You know, if, if the ball leaves the playing field, you know, they blow the whistle, the play is stopped, and, and that's it. So this is, a, this is the key difference, I think, between the two cultures. It's really interesting that you bring up that analogy because when I first started watching soccer almost probably 20 years ago now and it's a sport I have fallen in love with but when you're watching it for the first time and the first place that I watched it was this uh, pub called the Dark Horse Pub in Philadelphia where I lived which uh, was this little building with all these kind of like secret rooms in it and every room because they had, you know, they had to sequester the Rangers fans from the Celtic fans and they had to keep the Everton fans away from the Liverpool supporters and they had to, you know, so it had, it had all these little tiny rooms with all these little TVs and the crowd there was, um, you know, a lot of people right off the boat from England, a lot of people right off the boat from Ireland, um, you know, people that really truly loved the sport and so it was a, 
it was an interesting way to learn about a sport that I didn't know much about at all, uh, certainly not on a professional level. Um, but one of the things that I noticed watching one of my first matches there, swear to God, I'll never forget, was a ball got kicked out of play and the home team supporters hurriedly threw it back to the player to, 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 get on with the, to get on with the match. And I was like, that's insane. I'm like, if that was the United States, somebody would have taken that ball and they would have fucking left the stadium with it. They would have been like, oh, this is my souvenir. You know, but the, pe- <laughs> but the people at the stadium, they, they just wanted the game to go on. You know, they just, they wanted things to continue. And that was just one thing that has stuck with me for like 20 years. And I started to get the major differences because being raised in America, of course, I watched baseball my whole life, Max, you know? And, uh, and so it's, it's like you said, the fact that there's draws too. That's another thing in the U.S. People are, how can there be a fucking draw? You know, somebody's got to be a winner and there's got to be a loser. Well, actually, yeah. some of the best matches I've watched have been where, you know, a team's up 1-0 and, and then somebody comes back to level in the 90th minute and, and it ends a draw. You know, you can still have an exhilarating match be a draw. You can still have, you know... I don't know the continuity of it. The fact that there's you know no no commercial breaks every five minutes. You have forty five or forty seven minutes of uninterrupted play. It it really is a beautiful sport. Yeah, the draw thing is interesting because people will say, "I just saw an incredible soccer match. It was unbelievable." And I'll say, "What was the score? The score was one one." Yeah. <laughs> what? How is that? That's not good. What? Nobody won. Did you uh so did you are you a PSG supporter? Do you have a do you have a squad that you like to follow? <laughs> one do you have one in every country, I feel like maybe you do? Well, no, I, for some reason I ended up following the Sheffield Wednesday. Oh, okay. So that's a team up in Sheffield and um it's uh, because I have friends in Sheffield. I ended up spending a lot of time in Sheffield. I also became a big fan of snooker and I became friends with Ronnie O'Sullivan, who's considered to be the best snooker player of all time. He's a fan of the Kaiser Report. He's been on the Kaiser Report a couple of times. And we went to the Crucible, and we watched him play in the finals. And he's won, I think, World Championship five or six times now. And uh, he's just an amazing talent. He's considered like the Mozart of snooker. And I hadn't had any interest in snooker, but just watching him play, uh, it totally drew me in. If there's, a, there's a video of Ronnie O'Sullivan hitting a break of 147, which is the maximum you can break or achieve in one go playing snooker. And he did it in world record time of five minutes and 17 seconds. And it's just him just walking around the table for five minutes and potting every single ball. Just bang, 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 bang. It's the 147, and it's just pure genius. Yeah, he's a maniac. He has some wonderful videos on YouTube if you want to look him up. And if you don't know anything about snooker, it, it doesn't even matter because I I know just the very, very basics. But, you know, on a YouTube kind of journey one night, had bumped into Ronnie O'Sullivan videos. And I know how to play, you know, APA nine ball. You know, I know how to play eight ball. So I'm just, so I know a little bit about shooting pool in general. And I just watched this guy, perhaps even the video you're talking about. And I was like, I have no clue what this guy is doing, but he is going fucking ballistic. He is just going ham right now on this table. Yeah, it's really amazing because in snooker, you, you, these long, long, long shots that, that travel the length of the table, and it's a very long and wide table, and with this incredible precision. So, yeah, it's fantastic. So we learned, uh, did, 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 followed that. So that's also in Sheffield. 
And um, so, yeah, I got a chance to travel all over Great Britain, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland, Belfast, very fascinating place because there's still a lot of violence and religious strife going on in Belfast. Uh, it's similar to another city I, I've been to um, in um, Beirut, which is also an interesting city in Lebanon where you have a lot, it's just openly politically tense, right? You walk down the street and you just get a sense that there could be a, you know, a political uh, event, a shooting or something happening at any second, you know, but it adds so much, you know, it adds excitement to that, to, to what's going on. Um, yeah, Bel but Belfast is fascinating. I was surprised that it's still as tense today as, as, uh, as a, was 20 years ago i mean you know it's still very tense there and uh yeah so that's europe where did, man. You, europe is, where did you wind up did you wind up back in the states where are you now yeah yeah we're we're uh, in north carolina okay and you think that's you going to be your uh permanent residence for the time being or or you think you might still uh wind up traveling the world a bit uh, definitely when the lockdown is over, we'll be back on the road. I don't know when that's going to be, but we're back on the road. So we, we were traveling maybe two two weeks every month, essentially. Before the lockdown, we did a whole trip through South America to uh, Brazil, Colombia, Uruguay, uh, and um, Argentina. Did you drink any ayahuasca in the woods? No, I know I didn't get, didn't didn't pick up on any of this trip, but uh, we had a lot of fun though. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take your word for it. When you said before I parachuted into Paris, I knew that was a a figure of speech, but you just come off like one of these guys that could have actually fucking parachuted into the city. <laughs> well, actually, I didn't. I, what I did was it was during Iraq War One. And so flights were kind of hard to get. So I, I heard about you, that you can take a cargo ship across the Atlantic to France. So I did. I took a cargo ship. It's a 65,000-ton cargo ship that left a port in New Jersey, spent three weeks on the Atlantic Ocean. Oh, my God. Uh, and then ended up in, in the south of France. And that's how I got to France the first time So I took a cargo ship. So – there was the actual Atlantic crossing takes about nine days. And then there's another days, both on the Eastern seaboard and then on the European seaboard in particular around Germany, where they're picking up and letting off cargo, right? So it's a working cargo ship. And I was one of nine passengers on this cargo ship. And, um, that was an incredible adventure. Really we're out there in the middle of the ocean. And, um, uh, I remember the chef made me a birthday cake. This was in the winter. And um, so you're staying in a, an officer's quarters, essentially. You have dinner every night with the captain of the ship and the, and the lead engineer who comes up from the, the engine room, you know, and they have dinner. And uh, I remember the, the chief engineer was Yugoslavian and he drank Coca-Cola with red wine every night. And I thought that was very interesting. Mixed? And mixed together? Yeah, mixed together, yeah. Oh, my God. I've never heard of that. Right. But the crew was Italian. The captain was Italian. The officers were Italian. And they had this Italian chef on board. And they would, every night, prepare this four-course gourmet Italian feast with, um, it's just amazing food, incredible food, the whole journey there. 
And then for exercise, they had this pool that was about um, 25 feet by 25 feet by 20 feet deep. It was it was essentially the water from the North Atlantic was in this part of the ship that they used as a pool. So it's ice cold, freezing North Atlantic water in the middle of winter that you could go into. And I went in there once and I was like, no way, this is too cold. But there was this guy who was like 80 years old who would go in there every day. And I was like, wow, that guy's amazing. He's Iron Man. What, um, um, what year was this, Max? This was uh, would have to be in the 1990. And what was the cargo the- ship transporting? I mean, other than you. Just containers. Containers. Do you know what was in them? Do you know what, you know? No. It's just anonymous just, containers, just right? There's just like There are thousands of cargo ships, you know, moving containers around the world at every all every day, right? Yeah. It's just this amazing. It's also, before I went, I had this kind of romantic vision of, big nets you know being low lowered off the ship and picking up you know crates of chickens and goats and stuff <laughs> right right but when you get there it's like everything is computerized and automated so the ship is once you hit the port it's kind of like the, the, everything is automated you're, you're guided into a slip then the cranes are all not even met they're, they're all automated cranes they, they take containers off they put containers on uh, you know, and, and it's just like, there's not a lot of people around. It's just all very, uh, automated, uh, robots and things. And, um, yeah, it's not a, know. it's not a Vietnamese fishing boat. I mean, those, those things are enormous. I mean, what did it, first off, did you have to pay to get on it or did you like, did you go on and like help, you know, did you work or do something? Yeah, no, no, you pay for it. You pay for it. It costs I, it's 900 bucks for the trip at that time in 1990 or 850 bucks so you get you're on there for three weeks and you get three meals a day wow and you get you you cross you get the crossing you end up in europe so when i got to europe i ended up it was supposed to land in south of france actually but because the weather was bad it ended up landing on felix toe in england and i spent the night at a bread and breakfast with this really older older english couple who is just very, um, you know, uh, you know, they just were kind of like um, uh, some characters out of some crazy novel. So I spent the night there. Then I ended up taking a train north. I went to Bruges, then Zeebruges in Belgium, and then I ended up in Gare du Nord in Paris uh, eventually. So it took about three and a half weeks to get from New York City where I was living to Gare du Nord in Paris via the cargo ship and and this England and English coast. It's such a badass way to do it. I mean, given the, if you have the financial means and you have, you know, you're not under obligation to be at work the next week and you don't need to fly to Europe in 12 hours for a business meeting, who the hell would say no to doing something like that? I mean, that that had to be such an interesting experience. I found it interesting too. You said that the the dinners were like these massive meals, and it's funny that you know the the Italians probably for them that was probably their light. You know, hey, we're on the ship, we're just gonna throw some things together, which probably dwarfs uh, anything that we do in the United States for dinner. Oh yeah, absolutely, uh, absolutely. And well, again, it's just like 
you just trust the universe, right? Like it just came up. Somebody said, why don't you take a cargo ship? Because I said, I can't get a flight. Like, if I'm trying to get a flight, they'd say, take a cargo ship. So I just, I'd never heard of this. So I just, within a couple of hours, I booked this trip. You know, I was just like, well, we'll see what happens. Yeah. You know, I just <laughs> yep. trust, just trust the universe. And, uh, you know, sticking to this baseball theme. So when I was on the ship, they had a VCR and they had some movies. And one of the movies was Field of Dreams, this Kevin Costner film, baseball film. And so, um, we watched, I watched this film and then at, at dinner that night, the captain was really, really kind of quizzing me about what is the meaning of this film? He, he, he couldn't quite grasp it. Right. That there's a, a man, he, he, he's, he's, he goes into the, into the, into the cornfield, he disappears, he comes out. It's, it, what does it all mean? Like I saw, so we got into this very long discussion about what the some symbolically what this field of dreams movie means and, you know, and it has to do with America and all this other stuff. And, uh, this went on for several days actually. Yeah. I just find, have you ever looked at the, uh, taking the Amtrak across the United States either too? That that's another interesting thing. I mean, it's not, it's not as grand of a trip, but for like $200, uh, you can take an Amtrak from like uh, Buffalo to, somewhere all the way on the west coast and it takes like 14 days and it's about you know it's about the journey and you have to you have to make a couple of trips uh or a couple of uh layovers you know in certain big cities like salt lake city and stuff have you ever looked at that uh i've taken amtrak a few times uh not that much that sounds amazing though i'm definitely interested in doing it we've taken a cross-country trip by car we did it two times or three times definitely two times and we made um we made some. We made a, a couple of um, series. So the first one we did, it was Max and Stacy traveling cross country with Stephen Baldwin, of the Baldwin family. And we started in Los Angeles and we traveled to Florida by van and truck and car to make a twelve part series called the Great American Pilgrimage. And we did this almost, I guess, three years ago. So that was that was an amazing trip. Very fascinating in a lot of different ways. Then um, the next year we, we, we repeated that trip again. We made a, a good series called Gonzo. Stacy produced and directed this series called Gonzo. And so we did this kind of a trip re retracing the, that, that story again, that trip, and uh, went from California to, to Florida in search of the elusive Florida man. Uh, so it's just an amazing sights to be seen across the United States. You know, the country's got amazing, amazing locations. Yeah, there's a really cool blog online that documents this uh, trip. And they say it's, you know, at certain points, I'm sure it's very boring while you're, you know, while it's nighttime and you're going through the cornfields of Kansas or whatever. But that's the kind of stuff that I would find interesting because there's, you would probably see parts of the nation you wouldn't otherwise normally see. And then, of course, you have the obligatory areas where there's one shot of, of the train going over a, a set of uh, tracks that are elevated in the air. And there's no there's no like guardrail on either side of the tracks. And basically you're crossing what looks like a canyon. And they say when you look down off the train, it looks like you're just floating on air. And so I always thought that would be a cool thing to do. And it's so cheap that there's really, there's no excuse for not doing it. I mean, I really should be. Oh doing yeah. That. Definitely. You know, like for me, the fascinating part was going through the Dakotas 
which are the essentially the Dakota Nation and um, the Dakota Native population. And, um, you know, I remember going into the gas station and in the convenience store, and there's an, a, a Native American there in Dakota, and I struck up a conversation with him, and he's like, oh, so uh, you're from, uh, where are you from, America? And so, you know, this is a poignant moment because I'm not actually at that moment in America. Right. I'm standing in, I'm standing in their country. I'm standing in Dakota Nation. It's a separate country. I'm like, yeah, yeah, I guess I am from America. And it's, it's amazing in the amount of uh, territory uh, the native populations kind of, you know, the, 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 the Dakotas in these areas are enormous. They're huge. They're vast. They're gorgeous. Um, and um, we were at Standing Rock where they had that huge protest against the pipeline a few years ago. There's a casino there. And uh, we stayed there for a few days and um, visited the this, this, this Standing Rock Monument and these things. And, and, and it's, uh, it's just a fascinating story, particularly during these days of Black Lives Matter. You know, there's another group of folks, <laughs> the native population, that are similarly, uh, you know, been getting the short end of the stick. Uh, so uh, it, it's another, again, it's another education. Yeah, I lived on the border of uh, Tuscarora Indian Nation and uh, all the way out like near Niagara and West New York on the Canada border. And uh, when you when you take that one road that leads you out of, you know, the United States technically and into Tuscarora Indian Nation, things change instantly. There is a note. I mean, you're still geographically in the state of New York, you know, but technically you're not. And you can see the difference in how people live and the difference in, you know, what the government is allowed to do there and what they're not allowed to do there instantly. You know, shops pop up with different prices for cigarettes. And, you know, there, I mean, this where, where I was, I mean, there was just there was shit all over the place. You would just you would you would go there and it, it would just it looked terrible. There were just. There would be things, there would be cars, you know, abandoned cars in the middle of the road. And, uh, you know, a lot of the houses looked really to be in terrible disarray. And I would talk to local police officers that I was friendly with and say, like, well, what's the deal up there? You know, or I would hear like, oh, there was a shooting up there. Um, they say, well, we just don't go up there. We don't we don't go in there. We're not allowed to. We don't have jurisdiction, whatever. So it's it's wild. You're like stepping into another nation within the nation. Right. Oh, yeah. Well, it's a prison nation, right? So it's an open-air prison. And um, cops are surrounding the area, and everyone is essentially in an open-air prison. So uh, that's the tragic part of it. And um, it's part of uh, the tragic you know, origin of the United States. So right. it's still, still poisoning our consciousness in many ways, and um, that's the way it is. So, Max, what's your take on the, not to make a hard pivot, but I got a list of things that I want to get your take on that are, you know, somewhat current events. And um, a couple of my listeners had emailed me some questions, things that they wanted me to talk about as well. Uh, I know that we kind of align when it comes to being anti-central banking for the most part. Would, would that be an accurate statement or no? Oh, completely. 
you know, <laughs> okay. it's, it's, uh, we're, we're on completely the same page there. So no, no question about it. How did you start to go down that rabbit hole? <laughs> well, um, I guess it all started with Alan Greenspan, you know, uh, back in 1987 in the crash of 87, I was a stockbroker and Greenspan, Ronald Reagan and Robert Rubin, who was treasury secretary at the time started the working group on finance, uh, which later became known as the plunge protection team and the federal government and the central bank started to buy stocks, S and P futures contracts and, and got no, and destroyed free markets in America. Let that me was stop the you right for- there. How, how do you know that they're buying S and P futures contracts? Well, because they made that public. They said what we're doing to support the market is we're buying S&P futures contracts. So that was part of the public discourse. You see, on the October 19th, 1987. When the hell did they say that? They said that that week. Wow. Okay. So I'm going to have to look that up. Because right, if, that's not. It's not. It's not a. Um, it's not like like they don't trying to hide that. I mean, that's that was the that was the the purpose of the the setup. So on on October nineteenth, nineteen eighty seven, the market drops like twenty five percent thereabouts. It was the biggest percent drop in any one day, right? And um, the uh, on the fall the Tuesday the next morning was called Black and Blue Tuesday after Black Monday, it was Black and Blue Tuesday, because the market was set to open down another 500 points, which would have made every bank and insurance company in America insolvent. Right. So they got together and they and they, they came out. And as has happened before, like during the crash of 29, right, J.P. Morgan himself went to the floor of the stock exchange and started buying stocks, right? I mean, they... The federal government was buying stocks there, and that's that's not that's something that government has done, you know, here and there. But here in the '87 crash, they formally created this group, the Working Group of Finance, and that still exists today. And they've gotten bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And so the Federal Reserve Bank has become this enormous hedge fund, right? Bill Fleckenstein, you've had him on your show. He's very good at articulating how the Fed is essentially this enormous hedge fund, this like leverage 50 to 60 to one, and they're just playing the market. They're not, they're not, they're functioning as the lender of last resort or as a buffer toward failure in any way. They are the buyer of first order. They own 30% of Americans GDP, right? Cause they bought already 30% of the stocks on the stock exchange they bought and they're trying to compete with Japan. Japan has, has purchased, uh, as a percentage of the of the Bank of Japan's balance sheet, they're already 100% as a percentage of their balance sheet that they bought in the stock market. And they keep buying stocks in the stock market. So that would mean that the Fed, to mimic Japan, instead of buying 6 or $7 trillion worth of stocks, they're going to buy $22, $23 trillion worth of stocks. They print 20, another $22 trillion, buy another $22 trillion in stocks. That's where they're headed. That's what they're doing. That's that's the box that they've got themselves painted into that they can't do any other outcome. Yeah, and their thought process is very predictable and it's very understandable. I mean, it's not it wasn't a huge leap once I figured out exactly how fractional reserve banking was working and what happened with Greenspan and what happened with Bernanke, you know, because really I only came to here maybe 10 years ago and started looking at this stuff. But, you know, it wasn't a it wasn't a huge leap to say, oh, they're in the futures market or, oh, they're going to be buying stocks or they're buying the equivalent of stocks or whatever, because it's a very predictable 
thought process. Like you said, they've painted themselves into a box and they're not going to make their way out of the box until they are forced to make their way out of the box. What I found interesting that you just said, though, um, was that they had admitted to buying index futures. And I had, I've never seen that before. So I see here. Well, if I, you just look, if you just look at the the market for the futures contracts at that time, you just look at the open interest, and you look at where you know where the money is coming from. And all you know, you can deduct quite easily that the player. There's only one player that's, that has the capital to expand the open interest to that extent, and whether it's it, if it's stated formally or not, there is a tacit understanding that the federal government under this working group of finance made up of Rubin, Reagan, and Greenspan are now actively participating in the stock market. I, th I think that is a, that is the common understanding. That is, that is the, uh, that, that's, that, that's what gave people the confidence to go in and buy stocks again. I remember as a stockbroker, I'm, I'm sitting at my desk and everyone on, every one of my clients is, you know, got a margin call. And, uh, you know, so what do I tell them? Except that I, I, I'll tell you what's happening. The, the government is now buying stocks, so we're gonna, they're going to save us, right? And that's the story uh, on October 20th, 1987, to keep, to keep the lights on. Oh, I don't doubt that, that they were, but there's a big difference between what you just said now and what you said earlier, which was that they had come out and admitted that they did it. Well, I'm, I'd, I'd go through all the data at that time. I mean, it's obviously it's been 30 years or something, so I don't have fresh info at my fingertips. But I don't. I, I would. I, I. I would look at it right now and find out. I'm sure there's an academic. I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, there's I'll stand speech. by that statement. There's a thing here that says people point to a 1989 speech published in the Wall Street Journal by former Federal Board of Governors member uh, Robert Heller, in which he suggested the Fed could directly support the market by purchasing index futures, um, which, look, we're in agreement, me and you, that what's going on is asinine, and there's no doubt that the Fed is in the market, and the whole thing is really pathetic and sad. Um, but, yeah. you know, if, if there was an admission, first off, let's just zoom out for a second. There's still people out there that think that if you talk about the plunge protection team existing, that you're a conspiracy theorist. That I find completely asinine because that is a complete inability to just look up the fact that this president's working group on capital markets or whatever the hell it's called is still out there and it still exists. And, you know, they were just talking about it in the news like six months ago when we had, you know, when we had this crash. Um, but there would be a hell of a uh, precedent in terms of what people that are skeptical of the Fed could argue if they had openly admitted to purchasing index futures. Because all I hear, Max, are all these fucking people that say, oh, they would never do that. It's against the law. And I'm like, you guys think that they're concerned about the law? Like, we just doubled the monetary base and you're worried about the law. Like, give me a break. Wait, wait, wait. So, so let's talk about the, the Fed's purchase of the ETF, which goes by the ticker symbol J and K for oh, junk please. bonds. Okay, so it's against the law to buy that on the by the Fed. So they created an SPV with the Treasury, Mnuchin, to get to bypass the law, and now they are a big buyer of junk bonds. And now take a look at Herbalife. Herbalife is a company that oh, whose business model is extremely dubious. Some may equate it to a Ponzi scheme. 
and they just sold like $600 million of junk bonds. And, and guess who bought a lot of those junk bonds? The Fed. So the Fed is now actively buying junk in a Ponzi scheme called Herbalife. You have the European Central Bank lending money to the richest man in Europe to buy uh, Tiffany's, the jewelry store. That was money that was financed directly from the European Central Bank. The European Central Bank is now in the venture, you know, uh, the mergers and acquisitions business. Uh, totally ridiculous. So this idea of what the Fed is and not doing or not doing what they cop to do, and all the data that comes out of the government is highly suspect. Look at the Bureau of Labor Statistics and right. the uh, unemployment number that they just reported. They said, uh, well, the employment number is this, unless you want to add this other 3 million people unemployed, which we didn't because it would, the cosmetics, <laughs> you know, the, the optics weren't, weren't right for us. Right. So we didn't add the 3 million unemployed because we don't like the optics. Um, you know, so going back to Fed buying and selling treasuries in the open market buying, if you look at the, the, the whole linkage between the primary dealers and the central banking system and the flotation of uh, treasury bonds and how it works through the primary deals and then to these commercial banks, you see that there are tremendous conflicts of interest along that entire process. And, you know, it's. It, 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 it's 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 there's there are just you write and many people have done many books on on the conflicts of interest and the corruption of the central bank the broker dealers and the commercial banks and all of the um the pilfering the larceny that goes on um look at this whole kind of ongoing falsehood lie that the, the reason the Fed is printing money is to fight deflation. Right. Right now, the fact is, and I've been making this point for many years now, that money printing actually causes deflation, doesn't fight deflation, because all money is debt money. Right? It's all being, the only, when, when, when the amount of debt money being injected into the system is less than the rate at which businesses and bonds are collapsing, we call that deflation, when the rate of debt money is being injected into the system at a greater amount, then the underlying system is collapsing. We call that inflation. But the system is collapsing under a, a weight of debt. And it's just a matter of whether it's collapsing fast or slow, but it's still collapsing. There's nothing that can stop it from collapsing because of all this debt that's being injected by the trillions every week that, that they call quote unquote money, but it's not, it's debt. Money is something completely different. So um, th therefore uh, money creation and money pumping is causing deflation, uh, be not only by the fact that it's debt, trying to solve a debt problem, but because the biggest users and the biggest need for this debt are these banks and companies that are bankrupt and insolvent. And without that in fresh infusion of fresh debt money, they would have to declare insolvency but uh, in America, they're kept alive uh, as zombie companies and zombie banks. I'll give you a whole industry. The fracking industry is, is an, an insolvent industry from Correct. day one. It, yep. ne it never made money. It never will make money. Yep. It's cash flow negative. It's energy negative. It takes more energy in than they get out. But it's only there for one purpose, so that Wall Street can sell junk bonds to pension funds. Yep. That's the only purpose of the fracking industry. Or and, and a political grandstanding that comes along with saying we are producing more energy than Saudi Arabia, right. even though Saudi Arabia's cost per barrel is $3 a barrel or less. And the, the U.S. 
even at 60 to 70 to 80 dollars a barrel is still losing money on every barrel they produce throughout the fracking industry in aggregate there are two or three projects that you could say are temporarily on a short-term basis not insolvent but they too will be insolvent because the uh, wells dry up uh, faster than the debt is matures right they're selling 20-year junk bonds on projects that are exhausted after three years and then when the project's exhausted they the sponsors of these of the fracking industry walk away from these projects and leave the environmental catastrophe for the taxpayer to clean up right they don't they don't pay up they don't clean the externalities as they call them they don't they that's not a that's not a line item on their income statement they ignore that and we pay for that so so we end up paying many many times over again for this this catastrophe that is the fracking industry which is a subsidy a government subsidy to wall street banks it's a, it's a way that the government channels billions into the pockets of junk bond salesmen uh, as a subsidy that they take directly from us the taxpayer and so talk about okay did did the fed buy s&p futures contracts anecdotally you can put the pieces together and conclusively to, uh, prove without a scintilla of doubt that this is what they're doing uh, without, an, without an upfront um, press release stating as such because uh, just like it's very easy to prove that they're involved in many, many, many scams because at the end of the day, they are running a Ponzi scheme that's highly leveraged, 50, 60, 70 to 1. Right? Why isn't there an order to the Fed like Ron Paul wanted? Because if they actually did an order to the Fed, they would find a pile of hamster shit. It's the only asset on the balance sheet of the Federal Reserve Bank of America. They've got nothing. All they there, they've got less than nothing. It's a complete mirage. It's holographic economics. It's non-existent. It's meme. They spread memes. That's their job. They have no assets. Yeah, it's fractional reserve layered on top of a currency that's worthless to begin with. So it's like the worst. It's a Ponzi scheme derivative of a Ponzi scheme. You know, there's very few. First off, I think you just fucking nailed it with the fracking industry. There's very few things that my parents will pick up the phone and call me about and say, Hey, uh, I think you uh, just, just tone it down a little bit. You're getting a little you're getting a little out of control. But because uh, they listen to all my podcasts and I'm always uh, happy to get their constructive criticism since those are the two people that mean the most to me out of anybody in the world. But one of the times that I got one of those calls, I think it's probably two years of doing the podcast. I've maybe gotten two of them, you know, or my mom say, hey, you know, maybe just a little less name calling or hey, maybe just calm down a little bit. But uh, one, <laughs> one of the times I got one of those calls recently was after Steve Mnuchin came out and said, oh, in the midst of the COVID crisis, we're going to think about bailing out the oil and gas industry. And I went on this periscope, this rant for like 10, 15 minutes because I have read Max, you know, the Wall Street Journal's done a great job in documenting all of this shit in the Permian Basin. And like you said, really a lot of the Permian Basin, 95% of the projects were fucking dead on arrival, but that didn't stop them from inflating their estimates for investors, going out, selling junk bonds, you know, they have super saturated an area and everybody's coming in under expectations. Meanwhile, the executives are getting paid. Um, and like you said, pension funds 
are financing these piles of shit. So then when Mnuchin comes in under the pretense of, hey, this is something we just need to tuck in with the coronavirus bailouts, it's like, fuck you, these companies are fraud. The market needs to take these companies out of existence. The market is begging you, is telling you that these companies need to die. They should have died years ago, Max. But instead, they all went out and they all recapitalized. So that was that was something that set me off in a way where I got one of those calls. I was like, hey, maybe you should just calm down a little bit. I just think you're fucking dead on about the oil and gas stuff. That, well, yeah, I mean, that's clear. And so now the Fed is buying those bonds. Right, right. Yeah. Right. They're so like the they, world's they, they, worst Fed. counterparty, too. <laughs> I mean, that that's what I tweet about all the time. In, in addition to the fact that they shouldn't be out there buying any of this shit to begin with. And any time that there is massive money printing and trillions of dollars changing hands like we're seeing, all you know, we know that that is enriching certain people and uh, that the people on Main Street don't see any of it. They see... You know, $6 trillion going out the door. They don't understand what the inflationary effect is of that on their daily lives. And meanwhile, Max, there are people not only in the oil and gas industry, but across all industries in the U.S. that are going to retire. They're going to retire and live happy, comfortable lives as, you know, worth $50 million, $100 million, you know, $500 million, a billion dollars just as a result of what the Fed is doing now. I mean, the system is just so obviously corrupt and you know the the crony capitalism is just off the charts it's uh and right we'll, and the go ahead the word that the word that they use to disguise this to mask this would be deflation right so when the fed says we're fighting deflation by printing money and lowering rates right number one we know that that's actually the polar opposite of what they're doing number two though is that what the lower rates actually accomplish well they allow for these wholesale bailouts of of insolvent industries like fracking because they're borrowing money at close to zero or zero percent and it introduces a concept i came up with called interest rate apartheid so in the apartheid system let's say in south africa you've got the pan bantustin where it's a ghetto and they have no rights and they're being beaten on by the people living outside the bantustin and in america that apartheid system exists but the wall is through interest rates if I'm a friend of the Fed, I borrow money at 0%, or in some cases, I get paid to borrow. I have a negative right. interest rate, as we saw with uh, J.P. Morgan and others. But if I'm Joe Blow, that bag of donuts, I'm, paying, I'm still paying 20 20%, 20% or whatever it is on a credit card, even though rates have gone to zero. So credit cards never adjusted. That's a scandal right there. Or I get uh, behind on my payments to the bank and my credit card. Now those annual rates are going to you know, uh, 300%, 400%. I got a payday loan at 2,500% annualized interest rate. So I'm living in a ghetto. I'm living, my, my interest, how do I get out of the ghetto if I'm borrowing money at 2,000% and I'm competing with an entrenched oligopolist scoundrel in the fracking industry who's losing, uh, running an insolvent business, but borrowing money at 0% and paying them themselves a salary of 20, 30, 40 million dollars a year, right? So that's apartheid. That's an apartheid system. It's financial apartheid that we live here in America. It's an interest rate apartheid. Yeah, it's just crazy. And like you said, you can put your money in a savings account. The banks can have unlimited liquidity from the discount window at 25 basis points. 
and you can put your money uh, into the bank and get a credit card with the same bank and you're getting paid five basis points uh, of interest on the money that sits in the bank and you're paying 28% on the credit card issued by that bank. So, I mean, that is just, an, that's an absolute scandal in and of itself. I mean, I think the point that you made there is phenomenal. Yeah, interest rates are supposed to trade as a complex or the interest rate curve, the yield curve, right? So the, the Fed rate is the base rate for the entire interest rate complex. So if the Fed cuts rates, then CD rates are cut, mortgage rates are cut, and right. credit card rates should be cut, right? So that if the Fed's actions should benefit the economy as a whole. It should be that the Fed only lowers rates for their friends, but not for everybody else, right? That's not, they're not even close to operating on, on the basis of the, the, the institutional interest that they're supposed to be serving. It's clearly a captured institution working on behalf of a select few. I mean, that, that, that right there is a picture that shows the truth of what I just said. Just look at the interest rates of credit cards versus the discount rate to Morgan Stanley, and that proves what I'm saying. There, there's, it's not equivoc there's no equivocation upon that point. So what do we do if we have the, the money printing institution is now been captured by the worst amongst us, the cacistocracy, you know, ruled by the worst? You know, what do we do in that case? Well, um, we're seeing what's happening. There's now social uprisings. It's the global insurrection against banker occupation, as we've been calling it now for 10 years. It was the Arab Spring. It was Occupy Wall Street. It was the protests in Athens and Greece. And now you've got protests all over America. It's all connected to the global insurrection against banker occupation. All of these, all of these groups have one thing in common. They are fighting the central bank and they're, they're corruption in printing money for their friends and starving the rest of the economy. That's the single common thread that unites everyone globally right now. And that inequality has just exacerbated things and it's going to continue to exacerbate things. I mean, we go back to the credit card example real quick. So we're talking about, you know, a 27% spread between uh, the discount rate and what, what Joe Blow pays on his credit card interest. Uh, you know, who does that who does it benefit and who does it harm disproportionately? Obviously, it benefits the banks because they can lend unlimited amounts of money. And, you know, it's the greatest carry trade in history. It's a 27% fucking carry trade. But who does it who does it harm disproportionately? Not not the wealthy, not the people, you know, the guy that needs a credit card because he needs five hundred dollars of extra credit to you know, pay his cable bill. I mean, it, it really, it's like you said, like payday loans. It disproportionately really puts the fucking boot on the neck of the people in the, you know, lower middle, middle class, lower class. Um, it's just brutal. They're just brutalizing the lower class with this. Yeah, absolutely. Well said, you know. Uh, when people talk politically about wealth redistribution, I have another idea. I call it risk redistribution. Right. So in other words, um, the problem, the reason you have so much wealth concentration at an ever fewer group of people is because the accumulation of wealth makes it easier to accumulate more wealth with less risk. So that, as you point out, if you're a bank and you're lending and you have that 27% spread, uh, but if in fact you do, for some reason, make a bad loan or a bad debt, the, the government will bail you out. So you have right. no risk. There's zero risk. Um, if, you, if you are, let's say you're a stock trader right now and you're on Robinhood 
and you're you just made thirty percent in your Robinhood account on this bounce back rally in the stock market. Well, there's an asymmetric bet going on here because the pros who are also making money on the stock market all have spent one or two percent hedging their portfolio within the options and futures markets. And so if there's another fifty percent move down, they'll lose two percent. But those people in Robinhood are gonna lose all of it. They'll lose fifty, sixty percent, right? They're going to lose it all. They're not hedged. They don't know how to hedge. They don't know what they're doing. So, um, again, if you have a certain amount of wealth, there are ways to make it virtually impossible to lose money. The uh, the banks bear the, the banks yeah. bear no risk, right? When they when they lend to a consumer at twenty eight percent, they bear no default risk because there's a bailout just waiting for them when they need it. Think about what a right. corporate bond. Think about if a corporation issued a bond and it traded at 27% yield, what that would tell you about the risk level involved in that investment. <laughs> yeah, good point, right? Absolutely. I mean, and, and what we saw during uh, the 2008 crisis under Obama and Larry Summers and those guys was probably the first time in history, a significant moment in history where they bailed out the creditors instead of the debtors. Right, that was the complete wrong move. It set up the crash of 2020. Had Obama bailed out the debtors instead of the creditors, in other words, instead of he should have bailed out the mortgage holders and the credit card holders, but instead he bailed out the banks who knowingly made fraudulent loans. Right. And so what he did was, and their punishment was there was no punishment. They he recapitalized them all, and he expanded their 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 credit limits they they, he, they expanded the 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 uh, capacity to make more fraudulent loans so they did and so you had this bounce back until 2020 when the whole thing blew up again predictably because all that was done was to give the guys who did the bad things more credit to do more bad things so it only it took 12 years later i thought it would take 10 years but it took 12 years 12 years later thing blew up again and what's the response from the government this time is to same do the thing. exact same wrong thing. Right. Give the bad guys more credit to do more bad things. So the malinvestments are increasing. The bailouts of these zombie industries like fracking are increasing. The predatory healthcare system is always being bailed out perpetually by the by and subsidized by the government and our tax money. It's it's a it's an out of control monster. I think 17, 18 percent of American GDP is the healthcare sector. America is basically a, a hospital disguised as a country. And, uh, you know, that's another complete misuse of money. It's misinvestment, malinvestment, all because of the the interest rate apartheid crowding out the mom and pop, the small to medium enterprises, the entrepreneurs that should be getting that money and building, rebuilding the economy in a dynamic way that creates jobs. And you know, another picture that you can look at to, that gives you a graphic illustration of exactly what we're saying that you can't really argue with, and that would be the money velocity chart. Right. So the money velocity chart just tracks how quickly money is moving through the economy, and um, it's gone uh, straight down. It's almost at zero. That tells us that this six trillion dollars that was just printed, or the twenty-five trillion or thirty trillion that was printed over the past ten years, it was hoarded. It's being hoarded by banks. They're sticking. They're holding on to that money. They're not lending it out to small to medium enterprises. They're stick. They're holding it, and they're buying. You know, like Ken Griffin did at Citadel Hedge Fund, a two hundred twenty-five million dollar flat on Central Park South. 
Oh, by the way, he hired Ben Bernanke to be his advisor, former central bank chairman. Oh, yeah, that's not corruption, is it? Not too much. Uh, so that tells you right there that the, the, the central bank is captured. It's, it's, being, it's, it's a, it's a uh, rogue uh, institution that's tearing the economy to shreds. Uh, and not just the U.S. Federal Reserve, but the other major central banks around the world are engaged in similar activity. And, and the results are, are pretty obvious to see what's happening. And an easy way to global look at it. Global unrest. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Look, global unrest. I mean, they're causing it. Um, I think their game is to try to squeak out every last penny before uh, all hell breaks loose. Yeah, before the pitchforks and the and the torches are at the front gate, and then they'll get in the chopper and head out to their islands, and we'll never hear from them again. <laughs> but as you know, as long as there's another penny to be made, they, Larry Summers, Jamie Dimon, and Lloyd Blankfein, and all these guys are going to be squeezing, squeezing, squeezing us for every last drop of blood before they split. And you know, a great way to look at it. I tweeted out a couple of months ago. Hey, you know, we're going to do if you take the total amount of stimulus that the United States is doing and you divide it by the number of citizens in the country, it works out to, I don't know, between somewhere between $30,000 and $50,000 per U.S. citizen. OK, and, and you've gotten $1,200 of that. All right. You, you've got your little stimulus check for $1,200. And I just wrote, you don't need to know where the other thirty or $40,000 per person is going to know that you're getting fucked somehow. And that is really a microcosm of exactly what's happening on a larger scale, right? We're all collectively going to bear the inflationary cost of all of the money that's being printed and what's happening to it. This is like I had an aha moment when Ron Paul said after 2008, why don't we just cut every person a check for ten or fifteen thousand dollars? You want to, you know, you talk about increasing the velocity of money and rebuilding the economy in a, in a dynamic way. There's two ways to do that. You can empower the people, and you can actually stimulate them and let them go out and and buy the things that they need and pay off the debt that they need to pay off, or you can cut them a twelve hundred dollar check and give the other thirty or forty or forty eight thousand dollars to, you know, who? The investment banks, some, you know, the 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 1%, the people at the top of the curve. It is absolutely asinine. How do Max, how do we get people to understand that? Well, I mean, just to repeat the, the point there, going back to 2008, the the simple the the historical precedent would have been a bailout the debtors. So all mortgage and de- and credit card debt would have been covered. And the banks would have been allowed to fail. And then we've, we would have new banks that would have to be created in their place. And those banks, hope, you know, would be uh, hopefully not crooks. Um, so um, we had an option in 2008 to do, to do that. But um, Barack Obama, you know, and Larry Summers and those guys decided that uh, they got convinced that they should – they should instead bail out the creditors and let the uh, the economy suffer. If, in fact, we had bailed out the debtors and everyone was made whole in 2008, the economy would have boomed, obviously, because the whole credit cycle would have started again fresh. Right. And you would have had, uh, instead of all those homes falling, in, like in New Orleans and in Louisiana, all those homes that were foreclosed on in 2008, mostly in the black community, ended up being now being owned by Warren Buffett, <laughs> Berkshire Hathaway Real Estate Property Group, you know. So that was one of the biggest disenfranchisements of the black community in American history was the 2008 evisceration 
of black home ownership by banks who engaged in fraudulent behavior and then got bailed out. So, you know. How do we help people understand on a wider scale, Max, kind of what what it is that we're talking about? How do we how do we get my friends that are plumbers and welders and electricians and they either don't have the interest in understanding the system or they just don't have fucking time for it because they're too busy generating productivity and working. How do we get those people, how do we get these ideas distilled down to them in a way that they can understand it so they can really realize exactly how disenfranchised this is? Well, part of of the propaganda in the U.S. is the propaganda against saving, right? Because in the U.S. it's a Keynesian system. Right. The Keynesians hate savings. They call about you know they talk about the uh, the paradox of savings, uh, the the savings glut, right? They vilify savings, and they don't want anyone to have savings. They don't want anyone to have individual sovereignty. So the first thing is that you have to understand that we live in a country that is is propaganda propagandizes against savings, and that that's a problem. That's a problem right there. Right. So why do people like when this COVID-19 hits or when this uh, crisis hits, why do people have no savings? Why do they have only a couple hundred bucks in the bank? It's because we live in a country that thinks savings are somehow evil, that you should never save money. You should always be in debt and you should just keep consuming no matter what. That's the ethos of America. So the first step is, you know, to ask your friends that, you know, why do you have no savings? And the answer is, isn't that it's because I don't make enough money to save because, you know, people around the world, even, you know, Indian women living on a dollar a day have savings in the form of gold, 24 karat gold, right? There's nobody, if you want to save, you can save money. Even if you're making $5 a day, you can, you have savings account. And with that comes a change of mindset and individual sovereignty, right? So you have to ask people, why don't they have savings? Why are you, why don't you have savings? I mean, that's a question that if you can't answer that question, then, okay, there's nothing more to say because it's like, okay, you're, you're, you're committing financial suicide. Good luck with that. Goodbye. You're not going to make it. Fuck you, essentially. If you're that stupid, fuck it. You know, we don't need you. If you don't understand why you don't have savings, that's a fundamental logical flaw in your brain that either you're going to either overcome or you're not right. So that's the first step. And saving money means oftentimes you have to under consume, which makes people, you know, uncomfortable for the time being, but ultimately having savings is what allows you to, like you said, is establish some individual sovereignty and really have, you know, independence and, and, but you have to be able to underconsume, and you have to understand why savings are important, and you have to under you know you have to wholly reject this idea that you know the economy is based on spending only, and you know spending is the virtue, and savings is just you know hey you're just I saw an article the other day, Citigroup had gone out and told its wealthy clients there's just there's just too much cash on the sidelines, you got to put it to work. And it's like, really? You know, what's wrong with having money saved up in case you need it? And it's that underconsumption that eventually leads you to a point 
where, uh, you know, you have money for capital investment and you can achieve that sovereignty that you talk about. Otherwise, you wind up in this, you know, have it now mentality where you go out and you spend and you spend and you spend. But ultimately, that leads you back to this same desolate area where all you're doing is looking for debt relief and for your next spending fix. So it's just kind of a bit of seeing the forest through the trees, huh? Yeah, yeah, I, I agree, right? So um, the that's the question. The question is, what, what are you saving money or not? How are you saving money? And and that's that's my that's the question. You know, once you start to think about that, you start to think about your money. You have a your consciousness shifts away from how do I pay the minimum credit card balance and go out you know, and spend again beyond my means to, uh, I've got my set. I need to get two or three years of living expenses in the bank. I I'm going to not have that second donut. Right. Right. So that's a different, that's a different mindset. But once you take, once your mindset is, is oriented in that direction, then your values change across right. the board. Right. And then you, you know, and then, yeah, right. And so you have a you have a whole shift in the, in your values and the way you think and then you start hanging out with different people. You start reading different books. And <laughs> and you know, it's just like a different experience, right? So uh, that's that's I think something that people when you look at the problems today the the, the all the rioting on the street and stuff, these are people with no savings. <laughs> that's the biggest problem they have. They're broke. <laughs> right. What do you think you know what do you think the terminus is for the central banking model as it exists today? Like, when does the shit hit the fan, and how does that happen? Well, the shit's hitting the fan right now because it's social unrest. It's happening right now, and kind of the genie's out of the bottle. And I don't think there's, uh, I think there's the global insurrection against banker occupation. Right, this global riot is 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 flaring up all over the world and getting more intense. The central bank. The system um, will continue to double down on this failed policy of 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 trying to cure a debt problem with more debt money, and so the wealth and income gap will continue. the The few people that have captured the central bank will continue to get all the money, uh, and and you know. There's this, there's this. Basically, the Cantillon effect is 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 happening, right? So the Cantillon effect is is the um, process by which money printing goes into the essentially the hands of the pockets of a few people, mostly, and and doesn't really reach anybody else. So you see this in corporate America very quite easily because the central bank will print trillions of dollars. Corporations will use that money to buy back their own stock and the executives have stock options priced that are fractions of a penny compared to the actual value of the stock so if the stock goes up 20 percent their options go up five thousand percent right so they buy back their own stock with the money that's being gifted to them from the central bank and now suddenly of the trillion dollars that the central bank printed 800 billion is now in the pockets of a few people in the executive class of America's Fortune 500 that have been buying back their own stock. So they, they it's a gift essentially. They use the machinations of stock buybacks to gift themselves the money that the central bank is printing 
And so that's not going to stop. And so you're going to have this gap in, in, the, in the economy. And traditionally throughout history, you know, when you have that kind of ex, that kind of concentration at the very top and it's done by, by larceny, by stealing, by, by uh, regulatory capture and by fraud, institution fraud, uh, you have revolutions. So we're on now, I think, the glide path to a, an insurrection, essentially. I think there, there's going to be an insurrection in America, uh, as there will be in several other countries. I think that's kind of baked into the cake now. What does the future of money look like then to you? I mean, I know you're huge into Bitcoin. Um, you know, let's talk about Bitcoin and let's talk about gold. What does the future of money look like to you, you know, in a post-central banking system? Right. So so let's talk about gold, right? Gold is hard money, right? Gold is hard money. It's been around for thousands of years. It works as, go- as money for all the reasons, um, you know, I'm sure your listeners, and uh, have got, you've gone over this b- before, but it has all the properties you want in money. It's a store of value. It's, tr- it's portable. It's divisible. It's fungible. You can't counterfeit it, right? Th- this is what makes gold money. And what is money? Money is um, the, uh, allows me to do business today in, for something that I can then use tomorrow to do business or the next day or in five years or 10 years. That's the money is after many experimentations with many forms of money, currencies, you know, seashells or whatever. Um, only gold is something that I know if I take gold today for goods and services, I'm extremely confident that I can use it tomorrow to, to as money for goods and services. That's what makes it money. That's what makes it different than a currency, a currency, like the fiat U.S. dollar, it's fiat money. Every fiat money for the last 300 years has lost between 90 and 100 percent of its value. They, the average lifespan is like 27 years or something like that. That's a currency that's used as a medium of exchange, but it's not money. The U.S. dollar is not money. No fiat money is money in that sense. They are, they are government currencies that the government um, mandates usage of, uh, but they have no. Uh, even when I was in Great Britain, you know, I was in Scotland and I got a five pound note for in change once. And then I went back to London and I was using this at, for with a taxi and the taxi driver wouldn't take my Scottish five pound note because he said it's not English money. I'm like, dude, it's from Great Britain. The Queen's face is on this five pound note. You have to take this five pound note. He said, no way, mate. I'm not taking that dirty Scottish money. Right. That's the problem with fiat money. It has no value. It's just right. It's just it's it's a it's a unit of account that a government uses, but it's not money in that sense. So gold is um, and silver. Right. So but let's talk about gold. So gold is is fulfills the role of money. And throughout history, whenever the governments blow themselves up, uh, they always come back to gold. So I'm, I'm going at, at the other end of this catastrophe. We're going to go back to gold in one way or another. Either the US goes back to gold in some way, or my guess is that Russia, China, bring out a gold-backed currency or a gold-backed cryptocurrency that's either, that's partially or entirely backed by gold, then that becomes the hard money of the world. Then uh, the US dollar goes into free fall, or they have to come back, they they have to use their own gold, right? So I think the, the future is that gold 
as as we've seen over and over again throughout history, they, it always comes back. The gold standard always comes back into use, and and that's where we're headed this time. So I think we're going to see a return of the gold standard into the mix at Bitcoin, right? So Bitcoin is a suitable replacement for gold. And I think we're going to see a huge future for Bitcoin because it does everything gold does. And it's also native to this Gen Z and millennial generation that's very um, comfortable with it. And I think that's the, and you know, that's a separate discussion. But as far as gold goes, I think that we're going back to, to a gold standard uh, in one of the G20 countries, uh, probably within the next three years. So we'll go to Bitcoin in a second, but just to touch on what you just said about Russia and China, I mean, they're really hoarding the uh, the worldwide supply of gold right now. Isn't that right? Yeah, definitely. Right. And, and there's a reason for that. You don't just buy up the world's supply of gold or increase your supply of gold for no reason. They've been uh, monkey hammered by currency volatility and collapse and dollar shenanigans and monopolization of the SWIFT system and all these other censoring technologies for decades. And I think that the decision was made in Russia and in China that we're just going to uh, try to insulate ourselves against this by buying as much gold as possible. Uh, Russia was very good about when, when oil prices were a lot higher, they were buying gold with that oil, right? So the gold oil ratio is very important. And Russia has been buying a lot of gold. Russia, the, the balance sheet of Rus Russia is probably the best balance sheet of any country in the world. They have almost no debt whatsoever. They've got um, thousands of tons of gold um, and they can withstand a lot of, uh, of, of uh, Forex volatility. It's interesting, this recent um, kind of war that erupted when Saudi Arabia dropped the price of oil by $10 a barrel. It was assumed that it would really put Russia back on the back foot, but Russia actually had a couple of aces up its sleeve. And um, for example, they um, price oil production in Russia in rubles, but they sell the finished product in dollars. So actually, Russian ruble going down against the dollar is fills them up with. It's actually a net positive for them. And with that spread, they buy gold. So they, they are actually, and their cost is actually not much above $15 a barrel. They've, they've got a very low cost too. Uh, you know, so I think people are underestimating what's going on there in the economy of Russia. Uh, they're overestimating how the Saudi Arabian economy is doing in terms of their debt and the, uh, the problems in the oil industry. Uh, and the U.S. is trying to uh, go to a gunfight with a knife because they've got the fracking industry as their lead, uh, you know, case use case, which is a complete and utter disaster, as we, you know, talked about already. Yeah. So let's talk about what you just said about Bitcoin, which you said, you know, it can do uh, everything that gold can do. Um, yeah. But it, it, you really can't. You can't hold Bitcoin. You can't reach out and touch Bitcoin. Bitcoin is reliant upon having a digital infrastructure in place to function and and gold does not well for example i i can't really i have a lot of gold and silver and to touch that gold and silver 
is actually not an easy thing to do. Uh, number one. Number two, it has to be verified, which don't have that problem with Bitcoin because the transaction is the verification. All transactions are self-verifying. You don't have the, you don't need a third party to put a stamp on the gold bar to say this is genuine gold and hope that they're not, uh, you know, there's some shenanigans going on there. It's not portable. If you have $10 million worth of gold, it's, you know, good luck trying to get it through an airport. Good luck trying to move that gold. So it's, it's, it's tangible and physical in that sense, but it's not necessarily accessible, portable, or or verified. Like I could say, I've got $10 million with a gold bullion. I'm not sure it's verified. I can't move it. And, uh, you know, so it's there, but uh, it's not really there. So that 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 quality of gold, you know, has to have to take a kind of a closer look at it. And then on the meanwhile, on the meanwhile, with with Bitcoin, it is actually there, um, encrypted on the blockchain, and you have access to it with your private key, and it is supported by the network, and that network gives it security, uh, in that uh, it's the due to the qualities of the network, which, you know, I can kind of get into what the qualities of the network are, but I would posit that it, it is there and it is secure and it is accessible. So the, the, I can't really say that about my gold bullion. Well, I, I just don't know if that's the case. I mean, you say it can't be verified, but people have been verifying that gold is gold for thousands of years which is why it's been an economic instrument for thousands well, of yeah, years. Well, yeah, 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 but, but, but in other words, there is, there is, there is many, many instances of people buying gold-wrapped tungsten, buying counter, you know, gold that's mislabeled, sure. gold that's not verified. Uh, you know, it's, you hear stories all the time that say, oh, you know, we, we just found that this assayed gold in the vault of some major gold corporation is actually not 100% gold. We have to use a seismic Geiger counter, you know, reading a sonogram to find out if there's anything corrupting that gold. In other words, it's, 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 it's yeah, the industry is mature and there is good, I don't believe, you know, there's a good reason to believe the gold is, is the, the gold it says it is, but there is a chance of it not being. Whereas in Bitcoin, there that chance doesn't exist. It's impossible to counterfeit uh, Bitcoin or to have unverified Bitcoin. That's an impossibility. It's a mathematical impossibility. Whereas in gold, it's not a mathematical impossibility. Well, as quantum computing takes hold and you know we start to evolve technologically uh, in exponential fashion, we don't really know. It just doesn't have the, you know, it doesn't have the, tra the track record of gold, which is, you know, several thousands of years. And when you say it's not portable and it can't be moved, I mean, that's another problem that people have been getting around for thousands of years. I mean, if you want to, you talk about moving $10 million worth of gold. I mean, it's not really that much. I mean, you could put $10 million worth of gold into a truck easily and move it. Not, well, um, not, not, not across borders. Right. I mean, like I, I would just try to move 300 ounces from Europe recently. And um, it's 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 a real hassle. It's a real hassle. So it's easy. It, 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 you can't uh, moving across borders. It's hard. You can't go through an airport with a bunch of gold. People leaving 
uh, right? So it's you, it's not. You I mean the, the the you can get a truck and you can put gold in the truck, but can you drive over the border? You know, and go through border inspection with a whole bunch of gold. Can you go through an airport with a whole bunch of gold? No, you know you can't. You get there's big problems. Uh, you get flagged and there's big problems. Uh, it's so that I would say that that's not necessarily the case. When you talk about quantum computing and the problem there, that is not necessarily a problem either for two reasons. Number one, if you have the possibility of what's called a 51% attack, right? So you have some malevolent influences trying to take over the network with massive computer power. Uh, in fact, the way that the protocol works is that this would, in fact, spur the vested interest of that network to a front run this quantum computer, right? So that means the price skyrockets because there's a rumor or there's a belief that a quantum computer is in the mix. And now uh, the cost, you know, it's all about cost. So the cost of a 51% attack right now is enormous and nobody can afford it. Not any country or group of countries can afford a 51% attack to begin with. If they introduce quantum computing, the cost then goes up prohibitively more expensive again. Uh, and so that's the first answer. The second answer is that um, the core developers that are upgrading, um, you know, every six months or a year um, are in a position to thwart uh, any kind of that attack. But and, and the timeline for this is not it's the same thing as saying that gold gold, you know, is, is not is going to have a problem because when they start mining gold from on asteroids, the supply of gold on Earth is going to triple. Okay, that's probably true. But the cost of asteroid mining is such that that's not really true. If I say, you know, they're going to start mining gold from seawater and the, and the supply of gold on planet Earth goes from 170,000 tons above ground to 500,000 tons above ground, that's probably also true. But the cost there, again, is not really makes that true. A quantum computing attack it's conceivably on the fringe periphery something to look at but again the cost is is prohibitive it's not gonna it has the same remote you know area of remote possibility as asteroid mining does and versus cost etc so similarly similarly what happens if the price of bitcoin gets to a point where it is extraordinarily prohibitive to mine it um well that's the magic of the protocol is that when we see this with the different layers of the stack of the technology. So every two weeks, they have a difficulty adjustment kicks in. So the, the protocol looks at the network, sees where the mining uh, industry is at at that particular moment, and adjusts accordingly. And we just had a difficulty adjustment down by, I think it was 15% a couple of days ago, because you had the halving, right? It happens every four years. So the coin supply drops 50%. And so the miners now are getting a lot less coin uh, for their efforts and the energy they're expending. And so um, a lot of them dropped out of business. They went out of business because they were, no, they were not efficient to do in this industry anymore. And um, so hashing power, which is the aggregate amount of computational power thrown at this network, uh, decreased. And so the protocol automatically sees this and adjusts the, um, the, the network down, the difficulty adjustment down, in this case 15%. It finds the sweet spot where miners are um, incentivized to spend money to mine and to, to try to make try to make money. 
So, um, again, that's not a great, um, you know, negative, uh, you know, it's not an argument against it because the protocol has already built in the checks and balances to overcome that. Uh, so that's, I wouldn't, I wouldn't put that into, in, in the um, category of, of a, um, uh, you know, a negative argument. But I will say that your questions are far superior than Peter Schiff's because Peter Schiff has never even asked any of these questions. He simply categorically dismisses Bitcoin uh, without any examination whatsoever. And that's kind of where I like to make fun of him. I, I call him the pinata of Bitcoin. He's the gift that keeps on giving. You can just beat him with a Bitcoin stick all day long and he never, he, he never disappoints because he never actually looks at it. He never has any arguments whatsoever. The points you're bringing up are good points. And I, they, and I think they deserve you know good answers. And I, I hope I'm get, providing them. I think in my case, the, the, the way that I look about Bitcoin versus gold, it, a lot of it depends on what your, what your vision of a post-central banking world looks like. And what you just said to me was, well, you'd have trouble bringing gold over the border. And one of the things that I thought of is that if government still has uh, enough of a reach to prevent you from bringing things over borders, if we haven't gone full on post-apocalyptic and the, uh, you know, the world is reverting back to uh, one giant Pangea-like society um, and the government ostensibly has enough power to stop you from crossing a border with whatever you want, then this very same government has the ability to outlaw or destroy Bitcoin if it wants. Not destroy it, you know, from a code perspective, but render it render it illegal and and really hack off the legs of what's necessary to transact it and own it. Because again, Bitcoin is reliant upon a significant amount of digital infrastructure to exist. Right. Okay. So um, let's talk about it. So let's say governments outlaw Bitcoin. Okay, so let's look at this for a second. Um, we're heading into an, an era where fiat money is really collapsing all over the world. We agree on this. You can see it. And we also see tremendous interest in gold, right? Central banks are net buyers of gold for the first time in many years, decades. And they are buying it aggressively because I think the writing's on the wall. People understand that we're entering into another period where fiat money collapses. So people are buying gold. And um, so, and I'll, by the way, we, we in America, in, I think 1933, right, the government did confiscate gold under uh, Roosevelt. And uh, there, that was the basis of Fort Knox. The 8,000 tons of gold in Fort Knox were the gold that was taken from the U.S. citizens as part of the, the gold confiscation of that year. So let's say um, there's, the a, there's a huge difference between asking people to turn over their physical gold and hacking out the not hacking is the wrong word because we're talking about digital stuff, but uh, taking out the legs of what is necessary to transact right. something so, digitally. So, the government would have right. much more reach. Right. So they well, mm, let's talk about that. So with gold, obviously, they came to your home. And they took your gold. So one of the attributes of Bitcoin, for example, is that it is unconfiscatable, right? You can't, you can't take my Bitcoin. If, I, if I've got a, a, a memory, you know, a memory wallet, essentially, as it's called, and I, and I have the passphrase to my wallet, and that's the only thing that exists that, that identifies that uh, existence of those coins on the chain, on the Bitcoin blockchain, there, there's nothing to 
to confiscate. There's nothing to take. That I have nothing. I have nothing to say. Uh, and you know, no, it, my bitcoins are. You know, who who knows what my bitcoin position is? Uh, nobody aside from myself knows that, and uh, nobody knows uh, that it would be impossible to access those. So it's, it's unconfiscatable in that sense. But let's say the governments get you know, nasty. And they're like, okay, we're going to outlaw Bitcoin. And if you, if you show up in the transaction and we're going to examine the blockchain and we're really going to go after it. Well, this is where the game theory that's kind of built into the pro protocol kicks in at, at another level. So the game theory is that the reason the Bitcoin kind of works in a lot of ways is that all the, all the various parts of the network are incentivized not to try to kill the other part of the network. They all end up working. It's uh, They're all cooperating. The consensus algorithm, as it's called, it's all working together because of this game theory that's built in. Nobody is incentivized to fuck anybody else in in the protocol because then everyone would get fucked. So um, the the fact is that you have this brilliant incentive that's balanced in, 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 in the network. And if a government were to say, let's say the United States government said, we're going to outlaw Bitcoin and we're gonna we're gonna get really aggressive against Bitcoin. I uh, I feel personally I'm very confident that another country would say we're a Bitcoin safe harbor. We're going we we are tired of the American dollar. We are tired of fiat money. We actually are going to completely uh, convert our economy over to Bitcoin, and um, that would make a very interesting dynamic because then you'd have essentially the same thing we happened in the 60s with the space race where the russians launched the sputnik and then americans said oh no we're going to land on the moon so let's say russia or china or iran you know iran is a huge player in bitcoin if iran says that we're going to go to a bitcoin economy and now we've got a hard money economy and now actually all these other fiat money are collapsing it, you end up entering into a global hash war where these countries are like oh fuck if we don't have bitcoin iran's going to be going to take over the world so then now we need Bitcoin. So then they put hash power on in, in place. They convert energy. They subsidize hash power. Instead of subsidizing Exxon, they subsidize Bitcoin miners. They say, we need you know, X percentage of the output of Bitcoin to compete in the global race for Bitcoin. So I think this global hash war will break out, uh, number one. Uh, also, regulators and cops are paid in fiat money, right? Fiat money is collapsing. Um, I talk to cops and regulators all day long, prepping them for the day when they need to switch camps to save themselves and their families. I'm like, dude, that fiat money you get paid in is toilet paper. You got to start buying Bitcoin right now. You got to start saving in Bitcoin. So when the day comes and you get your currency collapses, you're fired, your government collapses, your government buildings are on fire, you've got individual sovereignty, something that's unconfiscatable, you're not, you're going to survive, right? So now they're like, it's like a fifth column, right? They're inside the fiat money system. We've got Bitcoiners inside the fiat money system that are ready to be triggered the second the shit hits the fan. So they're not the regulators are going to drop out. They're not going to they're not going to enforce shit. I've been all over the world. I've seen I was in Cairo during the revolution. I was in Athens during the revolution, you know, the uprisings, and it's all about getting the regulators and the cops to switch sides. That's that's how you win a revolution. So we're already making moves. You know, I'm already talking to these people all, all the time. And so we're getting ready. So it's built into the protocol. So now you listen to what I just said and you're like, well, that maybe that's true. Maybe that's false. It sounds a little bit, a little bit over the top. Um, that's fine. 
Um, well, a lot but, of it. A lot of it seems contingent on having to be able to overthrow the government. The government's going to collapse anyway, and there's going to be an insurrection anyway, with or without Bitcoin. I think we kind of see that, with or without Bitcoin. So then, then the question becomes. Because really, Bitcoin's history is limited to a decade. Most of the people that are buying and transacting it now, as I'm sure your friend Peter Schiff would tell you, you know, are speculating. They're they're buying it in U.S. dollars and they're looking to cash it out in U.S. dollars. Um, and they're buying it kind of as a speculative investment. I would say more so than a store of value. You can correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, you know, certainly I, I feel like you probably are buying it for other purposes. But... You know, in that situation where, like, you talk about, okay, well, maybe Belarus decides that they want to embrace Bitcoin and they're going to be the country that embraces Bitcoin after the rest of the, uh, the you know, let's just say the big countries that back the central banks, the, the large central banks now, um, and the major world superpowers all kind of declare it to be illegal or they want to create a, you know, a world digital currency, which, I, you know, I think could happen or a U.S. digital dollar, which I think we're on our way to. We're already talking about in those situations. They are they are incentivized to make Bitcoin uh, to get it out of the picture. And when you talk about, OK, well, like, hey, maybe uh, maybe uh, Malta wants to be a Bitcoin haven. I mean, when you look at a country that would adopt something like that, potentially in the minority in terms of a their, you know, ability to be influenced and, and militarily just stomped on, if possible, uh, by these big countries. I mean, is, isn't that worrisome? And when it boils down to it, I mean, what prevents somebody from taking Bitcoin exactly as it is now and coming up with a different cryptocurrency that, that takes all the best points of Bitcoin and adds to them? And then what happens in that situation, you know? And, and then what happens if people add derivatives of that? I mean, we've already seen all these forkings and there's a million cryptocurrencies out there. So... Right, well, you're, you're okay. You're asking like a few I'm questions. Sorry, so I'm me, sorry, I'm so sorry. Let me take them in order, right? Please do. So, the, so, so the, the first thing is about basically the governments, um, what if they all get together and they join forces against it? And sure, you might have a smaller country decide to embrace it, but militarily they could be crushed okay so what i'm saying is that all all the central banks around the world collude with each other they're all working together they're all printing money together every there's been 160 rate cuts amongst central banks over the past 10 years or whatever that number is it's a very high number and they all are in the same fiat money boat there is no hard money in the world it's since 1971, it's right. all fiat money that references other fiat money. Right. It's all a, a reference of a reference of a reference of a derivative of a bond of a reference. So they're all going to suffer equally. So um, they have two options. One is gold. One is Bitcoin. And I think Bitcoin will emerge as a safe haven asset or a reserve asset for a major central bank that's looking to save itself from the implosion, the global bonfire of all fiat money. Number two, you're saying, well, if a breakaway country, a smaller country is involved, they get involved and they could be crushed, quote, militarily. Okay, let's talk about that for a second. The, the United States military, they spend $250 million a day on gas, right? That's the, that's the gas bill for the Pentagon, just to keep that shit fueled up and ready to go. 
the jets, the tanks, the armor, vehicles, right? It's the, we spend 50 cents of every dollar goes to the Pentagon in our taxes. It's a $1.6 trillion budget. It's an enormously expensive enterprise. Uh, if the current, you know, just like the Roman Empire, you know, when the fiat money collapses, so too your military, so too your police force, so too your ability to do anything. Right. And we're on the cusp of that. That's what this insurrection is all about, because the fiat money is collapsing and the cost of running this global U.S. empire with 150 military bases around the world is we can't afford it by just printing more debt money. So I don't think these countries have a military capability at some point yeah, but is if, going if, to fade away. Max, if all of that collapses, that goes back to my earlier point of, hey, this depends on what your vision of Armageddon looks like. It all, if all that collapses and they're, you know, the military collapses and the police force collapses, then you don't have to worry about whether or not you can take your gold over a border. Um, first of all, I'm not arguing against gold, right? I own a lot of gold. No, I'm just I just mean specific silver, to your argument right? that you just made. So we have to- As far as portability, well, portability is one- piece of the gold story the gold story has portability divisibility fungibility you can't counterfeit it it's desirable it's scarce right those those are what's what aristotle said made gold money and there's there's a lot of there's a few right. pieces that's one piece and so it it it, it doesn't score well in the portability uh, uh score it doesn't score well in the divisible uh score it doesn't uh score well uh, in the verification counterfeit uh, area. One area that gold does score well is in the fungibility category. So in other words, if I have a gold vase, you know, I can melt it down into a gold brick and it's completely fungible. That gold brick is exactly chemically exactly what that vase was. And it's, un it's anonymous, it's undetectable, you can't, it's fungible. There's no connection. I can melt down gold bars all day long, and there's no connection if I create gold coins, right? It's fungible. It's it, Any unit of gold is exactly equal to that unit of gold, bullion, in whatever form it is, and there's no providence to that gold. You can't tell. With Bitcoin, because of the blockchain, it actually lacks in fungibility uh, because it's all completely accountable. It's on the blockchain. So um, you have now the biggest work being done in the Bitcoin space is to enhance that fungibility, uh, number one. Number two, uh, the argument that Bitcoin is used by criminals is kind of a non-starter because <laughs> anyone who uses Bitcoin in an act, a criminal act usually gets discovered because it's you, can, you just follow the blockchain and you can find the criminals. That's been the experience so far. Uh, whereas if you're using cash, fiat money, or gold, that's not the case. I can steal a bunch of gold, melt it down, and you're never going to identify that gold with that crime right uh but so that's just one the portability factor is just one now on the this question of well i'm going to create a new bitcoin i'm going to create there's thousands of coins what's going on here and that's i would say you know equally not a great argument because bitcoin is really you got to look at three different metrics here main metrics uh one would be the price the second would be the hash power how much computational power is actually being thrown at this network and uh, thirdly, you know, what is the volume of, of global uh, in, in this crypto space, the Bitcoin and crypto space? Okay, so and, and, and also market capitalization, how does that relate to this entire universe? So during the 2014-2015 period, when there was an explosion of the so-called altcoins, right, you have what percentage of the, are the market that Bitcoin uh, occupy? It went from 90% down to roughly 30%. Now it's back up to around 65%. Uh, 
as we see those altcoins all fade away because they did not compete with Bitcoin and they are, they, they are actually just fading away. Uh, another metric to judge this by would be that the universal hash power of all crypto markets, right? Bitcoin is 85% of all the computational power that's thrown at this market is Bitcoin. And that number is rising. It's rising rapidly. So the coins like uh, Bitcoin Satoshi Vision or Bitcoin Cash, they actually have very little behind them. They're, they're actually exposed to 51% attacks. Uh, in the case of Bitcoin Satoshi Vision, it's a it's a it's a it's a scam by this guy in Australia who controls 80% of the volume, who's just trading with himself all day and using this guy Craig Wright as kind of a stalking horse to create volatility. It's it's a fake. It's just a, just like gold create has its imitators and pyrite and fake gold and it's just like gold, but it's better than gold, right? It's if, if people want it, they're going to create fakes. So it's got 85% of the hash rate. And it's got 90% of the volume. So 90% of all the volume of all these is all Bitcoin compared to all these other coins. So it's got 65% of the mark of the markets, 85% of the computational power, 90% of the volume, and those numbers are growing, growing every single day. It's got it's like uh, in 1995 when I was started the Hollywood Stock Exchange, people were saying the internet's a fad. It's never going to go anywhere. Paul Krugman of the New York Times said it's, it's like the fax machine. At most, it has no value at all. And certainly enough, it became ubiquitous because the protocol that runs the Internet is the protocol that runs the Internet. And it's possible someone could come up with another protocol to compete with the protocol that runs the Internet. But um, it's not it's not going to challenge the protocol that uh, runs the Internet because it's become become embedded in into the global technosphere. Right. It's not it's, it's not going to be moved out of the way. Because it is now the standard by which this entire industry is based upon. Similarly, with Bitcoin, there have been a few posers, you know, to the to the to the crown. They've all failed. Now they're all fading away. They'll all be dis completely disappeared within five years. And and what will be left is this one coin that's got 99% of the market, 90 90% of the hash rate, 90% of the market capitalization, and it's used. By now, look who's look who's now positioning themselves in Bitcoin. Paul Tudor Jones. I mean, look his comments recently. You know, he's I've known Paul Tudor Jones since I was working on Wall Street in the 1980s. He's one of the sharpest guys in America when it comes to money, finance, and investing. He said, "Look, uh, he thinks inflation's coming back. He thinks that the fiat money is going to going to collapse. He thinks that the Fed is out of control, and he's buying hard assets. He he likes gold." He likes Bitcoin, but Bitcoin is the fastest horse in the race. That's what he said. Bitcoin will catch up to gold at some point. Well, gold's got an $8 trillion market cap. Bitcoin's at, what, $180 million. Um, so Or $180 whatever, a billion. billion. No, yeah. million. So then you have this gap is going to be closed as these two get uh, more parity is reached. So for every dollar the gold goes up, you know, Bitcoin's going to move $25 just to catch up. To gold because people around the world will start it's also kind of hard to buy gold in the size it's it's tough to source you know like during the last run you know the refiners in switzerland were like we don't have any gold we ran out of gold we can't find gold russia was like we we we, we would like to buy more gold you know we can't find any gold so that's that's going to be a big driver of bitcoin it's going to be like you know what we can't get a, a billion dollars worth of gold let's start nibbling away at Bitcoin. Sovereign wealth funds will start buying Bitcoin. Central banks for a strategic reserve, high net worth individuals. 
you know, as you know, less than 1% of the $100 trillion invested in investable assets around the world is in gold. Excuse me, in gold. Why does, right? so, why does Bitcoin need to achieve parity with gold? What, what, what it law? doesn't need to achieve parity with gold, but I think that's a good metric to look at and understand why? that they're, they're because two, they're two completely different things. Well, that's where we disagree. Well, I mean, they're just they're, they're completely different. I mean, one's been around for a decade is strictly digital. The other one is, you know, been around for thousands of years, been accepted as an economic instrument for thousands of years, can be used in production. So it has value outside of being a store of value. I mean, they're just completely different things. Any way you look at them from a molecular level, from a usability level, from like you said, a, a, a transport level, from a reliance on infrastructure level, they're two completely different things. So why, why would, you know, this argument of, oh, Bitcoin has to reach parity with gold. Why, why does that make sense? Well, I didn't say it has to. I said that it. I think it's a good. It's a good, um, reasonable expectation that it will, uh, because as I, I believe that it's um, equivalent to gold. And um, so you, you, you mentioned Why? you mentioned if you well, you, well re, re recount your reasons again. You, you mentioned three or four things there. Well, you said re, re, so. So the portability factor we covered. Uh, you say you say that gold's been around for thousands of years. Bitcoin's been around for for ten years. And Paul Paul Tudor Jones right? is making the argument that it's that it's the fastest horse right now, right? And you made the argument that essentially that Bitcoin has achieved some type of escape velocity. That if everybody, you know, because everybody has there's this giant global consensus that it is a thing, and that's what makes it a thing. Um, and Paul Tudor Jones saying, "Oh, it's the fastest horse." out there yeah i mean that's because it's right out of the gate i mean it's it's been 10 years and it's come right out of the gate but the, I, I mean i don't think that that is confidence inspiring enough to you know listen bitcoin just appeared it it appeared out of nowhere it, it's a beautiful piece of programming it's a beautiful piece of code but it you know just as bitcoin just appeared something that adds to what bitcoin offers can just appear tomorrow and how quickly that is adopted you know we may never know. I think there's this extraordinary volatility. There's all of these variables digitally that Bitcoin has that gold doesn't have because it's not digital. You can't fuck with it. You know, molecularly, it is what it is. From an elemental standpoint, gold is gold, right? And, and, and so... Right, well, okay, well, you're going through a few different things there. Go right? ahead. So, um, the, 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 the gold you mentioned was had use outside of a store of value or hoarding gold. Well, 90% of all the gold above ground is used as a store of value, right? So very little of it is used in, let's say, electronics. And that use case is going to be probably to get disappeared as well because other materials that work better than gold in electronics will, will substitute out gold. So but the overwhelming use case for gold is as a store of value is a store of wealth that's 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 gold it's it doesn't really have any other use uh that's that that makes it interesting it, other than it, that it does Number, though i mean it it is used and especially when you talk about silver too as you talk we're not about we're not talking metals. about silver we're right. not talking about silver we're talking about gold and i'm saying that the overwhelming use case for gold is as a store of value it has some applications industrially which i think are going to be lose those uh pretty soon anyway but it's not it, it, I think that I think that argument is overblown in that sense because it's overwhelmingly 
it's used as a store of value, either by people who are hoarding gold around the world as, you know, jewelry is, 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 yeah, you can use it as jewelry, but that's you're essentially hoarding gold as a store of value, right? Uh, central banks own 33,000 tons, I believe. Uh, you have 22,000 tons held by women in India, for example. Uh, so that's 50-something thousand tons out of 160,000 tons. And then you go right down the line and you find out that most gold is, is held so, uh, by a store of value. Uh, so that, I don't think that's a great argument. As yeah, but, far but as do you understand, but, but Bitcoin is transacted on computers that are built using gold. Yeah, to some some degree, some gold is used. <laughs> so well, even, used even Bitcoin, even Bitcoin is relying on gold, right? It had, and and those and not, but not to a degree that would offset the fact that the overwhelming majority of gold is held for store of value purposes. And to the to the extent that it is used in electronics, I see development of alternative materials that will replace gold in electronics anyway. As, and that's so we'll see that coming down the road. It, but even if that wasn't the case, the overwhelming use case is still a store of value. Number one. Number two, remember, I'm not saying that gold is uh, that Bitcoin is uh, I'm, not, I'm not saying gold doesn't have a use either. I own a lot of gold. I probably own more gold personally than Peter Schiff. And I'll tell you, that's it's ironic, but that's probably <laughs> true. That's probably very true. Um, and so, you know, so why do I own so much gold, you know, uh, because I believe that it's hugely important in this in this in this whole unfolding nightmare that we're seeing in the banking sector. You, you mentioned the track record. OK, gold's been around for thousands of years. Bitcoin's been around for 10 years. And that's a good point. Um, and what's happening is that as the network continues every week, every month, every year, and it's got, it's been, you know, 99.99% uptime, never failed, and it's attracting more users. And unlike gold, you do have like a networking effect, you know, so Bitcoin is like gold meets a messaging app, right? So that's why Jack Dorsey, right, he, 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 know, he understands that Bitcoin, and he's selling a lot of Bitcoin over there at Square, his other company, not Twitter. And he understands that for this generation of millennials who are on their phone all day, who are easily into Bitcoin, and they are socking it away, and they are accumulating tons of Bitcoin, and uh, it's growing like a, a network effect. It, so the so the it's only been around for ten years, but it's never had a really a down down day. It's been up and running faultlessly for ten years. It's done everything everyone said it was going to do for 10 years the hash rates goes up the nodes are doing what they do the miners do what they do the game theories kicked in they're, they're all the uh you know governments are looking at it everyone's trying to attack it no one's been able to attack it it's been it's understood many many attacks uh from governments already from individuals from corporations jamie diamond he hated it warren buffett he hates it now jamie diamond is open is doing business with the winklevoss twins right he got converted by bitcoin bitcoin changed his mind He's a convert to Bitcoin now, just like um, Paul Tudor Jones, just like Mike Novogratz, just like, uh, you know, uh, Robert Kawasaki, right, who is rich dad, poor dad. Now he's all in on Bitcoin. So now it brings in another 50 million users, another 100 million users, and they're clicking, clicking, clicking. They've, they're on their cash app. They're on swanbitcoin.com, which is a company I'm now uh, affiliated with. It's easy to uh, stack sats. Right, they're they're stacking sats. It's working. I'm building wealth. I'm saving. I'm, my mind is changing. Right, and I can get the same change of consciousness by saving in Bitcoin that I would get with gold. 
And that's, as we've said, it's a change of consciousness that brings about, why don't I save more? Why do I be in, why am I in debt? Why is this country in debt? Why are we Keynesians? Why aren't, why aren't we, you know, Austrians, right? It just, you brings all that to the table because you've changed the way you think when you start to save in hard money like Bitcoin. The volatility factor is definitely there, but the trade-off for the volatility is the rock solid, never changes in 10 years, 10 minute emission schedule of coins. Every 10 minutes, the rewards are paid out by the network through the protocol, and that's the monetary policy that not changed, unlike the Fed that changes their policy every three minutes, every five minutes, every day. Neil Kashkari is saying, we've got a new policy, we've got a new <laughs> program, we've got a new, we've got something else, we've got something new. The ECB, no, it's something new. The IMF, the World Bank, it's all new, it's all changing. It's, it's the Trump, it's a new program, it's an old program, it's a, this program. Meanwhile, Bitcoin, every 10 minutes for 10 years, the, the coins come out without fail. It's, un, it's unconfiscatable, it's uncensorable, right? I'm a journalist, I get censored all the time. Uh, you know, I understand what censorship is all about. And to have, be able to transact, to be able to store money and not have um, SWIFT system interrupt payments. To not have the government interrupt payments, not have PayPal interrupt payments to Julian Assange, as they did uh, with WikiLeaks. To have the credit cards say Julian Assange can't get any money. They censored him. What did he do? He went to Bitcoin and he got uncensored money right into the, his WikiLeaks, which is a valuable asset of, for journalists around the world. So all those things are coming together and causing an explosion in use cases. You got 50 million, 60 million, 70 million users. This time next year, you're going to have 700 million users. Okay, and then it becomes embedded in the global economy to the extent where you're going to be using Bitcoin and you won't even know it because you'll be on some game somewhere playing with some token, but happens to be collateralized by Bitcoin. Then you won't even understand that or know that or it won't be obvious. And you'll be like, oh, I hate Bitcoin. And you'll be trading on Bitcoin all day long. Just like when you say, oh, gold is in the computers that helps secure the Bitcoin network. You'll be using Bitcoin on top of whatever it is you're doing a year from now without even knowing it because it's so embedded in the global economy. Well, when you, so there's a lot to unpack there, obviously. I mean, the first thing that you said is it's hard money, and it's just, it's not hard money. I mean, the definition of hard money is physical money. It's hard money. Well, you, you can see that. I would disagree. You, 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 no, yeah. I would, no, I would definitely not, definitely not see that. Um, hard money in the case of Bitcoin is, is that it is harder than gold in, in terms of being money uh, because it is... In fact, um, it has behind it the network that is it, it is um, un it's it's unimpeachable, right? That, whereas gold is still open well, and, to, unless, to, to problems. unless you don't have the infrastructure to transact it. That's a different story. If I don't, if I'm don't have uh, you can't you can't go internet, live out in the woods with right? no power and transact Bitcoin. That's correct. Right. So when you it talk about mean, these, it, when you talk right? about these insurrection-like scenarios, and you're using yep. terms like hard money, right. in, in a case like that, it doesn't even have to be a post-apocalyptic world. But what if there's what if there's what if there's what if there's an electromagnetic pulse? What if we have a solar flare? Right. Which is one of these. Actually, actually, let me let me backtrack a little bit with the example of somebody in the woods who's not who's not let's say on a computer. The fact is that there are now way that you can now uh, through uh, Blockstream has satellites orbiting where they're uh, broadcasting the blockchain. Yeah, but so if you don't with, have a, if you don't have a power grid, right? But if you but if you have any power, if you have a battery, 
have a battery and, and you can connect to a satellite dish, you can trade in Bitcoin. And that people are doing that in Venezuela right now. So right now, people in Venezuela are off the grid with a satellite dish yeah, connected to what, what blockstream satellite. Right, They're what if transacting you don't have a, what if you don't have a battery, though? What if you just, uh, okay, if you just okay. want to live off the land and you just want to live, right, out, but not, you want to live out right. in the woods? Well, I'm not sure gold is necessarily a great, in that case, I mean, it's useful, but okay, you're living off the grid. But you have it, you forest, can move it, you can connected. store it, you can You've touch it. You've got some gold, right? And I go and I'm trying to buy something with gold and the guy's like, well, uh, how do I know this is real gold? Uh, I don't know. I'll tell you what, you say it's worth $1,000. I don't think it's real. I'll give you a hundred bucks for it. Right. That's that's the reality of it. So now you just took a 90 percent haircut. If, in fact, you have any primitive access to just like a primitive battery, a primitive satellite dish. And you can say, I've got one Bitcoin. It's worth X number of dollars and it's verifiable on the chain. And that's exactly what it's worth. That's hard money. That's what hard money is. A gold, a gold bar that anyone can say is worth anything at any time because they're not near anybody that tell them any other anything else is not hard money. That's that's better than fiat money, but it's not Bitcoin. But just just to go back again to what you were saying, I mean, you, there there are ways to verify gold, right? Like you can use magnets, right? I mean, but they they cost money. They, they're expensive. But they to, don't to verify gold costs money, whereas Bitcoin does not cost anything to verify a Bitcoin. Let's think about the idea of a solar flare, okay? Because this is one of these right. things that comes up all the time: an electromagnetic right. pulse. And if it's not the sun then let's say there's some type of war where, you know, an EMP is talked about all the time. It's like one of these exogenous right. events that could really fuck things up. Even in the case of a pandemic, like now we talk about the coronavirus. Say say this thing was much worse than we thought. And let's say the power grid, you know, went down because people just stopped going to work. I mean, we saw it a little bit. Right. We got a taste. Meat stopped showing up on the grocery store shelves, whatever. I mean, you're, you, in, in, in any type of situation like that, these insurrection situations where you keep bringing up, you don't have access to your Bitcoin, you don't you don't have access to it, right? Um, in 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 extremis, in a situation like that, like say the yeah, but the, I mean, the, but, the electronic but, attack. But well, let me finish, right? Go ahead. Let me finish. So so you you're you you suddenly are you, everything is down. You're you there's the electrical pulse. You're attacked. It's all non-functioning. Um, a couple of things. First of all, the the use of Bitcoin in transaction. I think it's fair to say would be problematic. That's correct. And as opposed to my less than uh, my, my my less desirable uh, gold, my number two position would be gold, and I would be willing to transact in gold if I couldn't transact in Bitcoin because it wasn't uh, possible to do so. I'd say, okay, uh, I'll transact in in gold. Uh, that's right. But now the other point that needs to be made is that the network. Uh, the chain, the blockchain, by the way, doesn't disappear, right? It's just, it's, 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 it, it's just a matter of that electric. If that electricity or that grid was interrupted, it, then if it were restarted at any moment, right, it would the the whole chain would be completely intact and ready to go, right? So there wouldn't be any. You wouldn't lose but it's, anything. It's You're... reliant upon servers to be running. It's reliant upon code to be written. It's reliant upon people, you know, everywhere to right. have that, access. That all it just starts again, right? You take the chain from the last block, and that's the beauty of a blockchain. Every ten minutes, it's audited, and it's preserved, and it's 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 uh, incorruptible. But don't it's, you it's, think? It's, don't uh, you think there's this huge Achilles heel in being dependent not only on your own personal infrastructure? It's not just like, hey, if my power goes home, goes out at my house. 
then I'm screwed because I can't transact my shit while everybody else is doing it. But what happens when, you know, power goes out to certain parts of the world? Certain servers go down, certain servers stay up. Or again, in the case of... Uh, and by the way, I don't think the pandemic is, you know, you said in extremists. I don't think it's this absolutely crazy event. We've already gotten a taste of it. And I mean, your argument against taking things over the borders and things like that. I mean, you're, you're bringing up the idea of the central bank system collapsing and this massive government and, and, and monetary overhaul, which, by the way, I think is a possibility. I'm not I'm not poo pooing that argument, but I'm saying in a situation like that, I mean, that makes it that would make it even more difficult. Right. To transact Bitcoin. Well, it kind of gets back to what we're saying. You know, go back to what, you know, we're leading up to this, what we're saying in terms of everything kind of, we're kind of repeating the argument here, but, but let me, let me, let me answer. So the, 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 the argument is that all the attributes that Bitcoin has make it in my view, equivalent to, or in some cases superior to gold. You're in your example of this uh, electrical grid failure uh, that people are, let's say, isolated and have no access to the stuff. Um, in that case, we would have, uh, first of all, your wealth would be preserved on the blockchain, unlike any other wealth you might have. Your house could be taken, your gold could be taken, your bank account could be taken. So all of your wealth would be stripped from you. You would have no wealth except for your Bitcoin. The Bitcoin would be the only wealth you have in a situation like that. The fact that you can't transact with it right now, that's okay, that, that could be true, but you can go to somewhere where things are working and fire it up and you're transacting and your wealth is there. Whereas that cannot be said with gold or fiat money or your house. All of those things can be confiscated, not Bitcoin. Well, and, and that also assumes that Bitcoin has reached an adoptability scale globally where it's even considered wealth because you'll, you'll be able to transact it, you know, prevalently That's enough. what's happening right now. That's what's happening right now. That, that's right, the but, transition we're seeing. But, but we're not there yet. And, and we're certainly it's not there on now. the level where gold is, where pretty much, you know, if you have gold, you can take it anywhere in the world and you're going to be able to use it. You're going to be able to sell it. It's fungible, like you said, right? Oh, okay. That's why I think gold's a good comparison and, and a good target for market cap for Bitcoin to aspire to. That's why I think it'll get to gold's market cap. That's why I think it'll get to seven or eight trillion dollars. So just to go back to your uh, example about you know people taking the house and things like that, this this again goes back to hard physical assets versus uh, versus not hard physical assets. I mean, it's it's hard physical. It's a hard asset because it's it's uh, unconfiscatable. It's immutable. You cannot you cannot interfere with it. It your wealth is there permanently. You, no one can take it or change it or, or mess with you. You are now in, you have seceded from everything else. You are now individually sovereign. The state of you, your state of you. That's it. You got your own bank. You are now a sovereign individual. Okay. Only with Bitcoin is that possible. You cannot do that with any other form of currency slash money. That's why and people are beginning to understand this, and that's why the usage is moving up rapidly. That's why people are adding it to their portfolios. Uh, that's why people are uh, expanding uh, the debt, you know, it, it, and it's becoming into the pop culture, and just like the internet was. You know, when I was in Hollywood during the internet days, nobody had an email address because they thought it would tag them as being a geek. 
Like you go to CAA or William Morris or some talent agency, they're like, I don't have an email. What do you think I am, a geek, right? And then the Blair Witch Project came out and you know, the, everyone, Hollywood discovered the internet suddenly. But uh, you know, this is where we're at. We're in 1996 uh, for Bitcoin in terms of, the, in, in 1996, the, the browser went public, Netscape went public, the modern internet was born as we understand it, and the world was utterly transformed. Yeah, but and now the top five biggest capitalized companies in the world are internet companies. Right, well, Netscape gave way to many other browsers, but that's besides the point. Uh, you know, no. Well, it, it it made the it made the 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 the, the, the you know the, up until that time it was M DOS was the was the uh, the internet was nothing else that's available it was unnavigable it was not a pop culture it was not a useful tool no, right so Netscape gave uh, gave birth the 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 popular internet then came America Online right America Online so suddenly the internet was available then the personal computer was Steve Jobs so then suddenly you had the it was a consumer product and people were, you know, and then you had the Metcalf's law kicked in. So every time somebody added the, a user to the internet, the square root of the value of the network went up, right? That's Metcalf's law. That's the power of a network effect. So now here you have uh, Bitcoin adoption is growing by tens of millions. And so now the fiat money world is collapsing and people are understanding the, the equivalency to gold. So I'm not the only one saying that anymore. You've got many, many people talking about this all over the world at the highest levels of journalism, academia and science. And so now it's a, at some point you're going to have that hockey stick moment where it's like, oh, wow, you know, suddenly it's at $100,000 a coin and over a billion people are using it and all the other altcoins are worth zero. And we're in a new age. That's that's what we're talking about. That's what's happening. Now, I could be wrong, but, um, you know, that's because I'm making a forecast that's based on my track record, my history, my experience, my and, and everything that I bring to the table. And so that's what I'm bringing to this conversation. Um, and uh, but we, we won't know for sure for another two, two years, probably at the most. We won't really know for sure whether or not Bitcoin takes over from the U.S. dollar as the primary world reserve currency. Right. Well, there's, look, a lot of the things that you said are dead on right. And the problem that Bitcoin seeks to address is a very noble cause, and it's a problem that needs a solution, right? And we're on the same page there. And I'm not going to, you know, I'm not arguing with you that the adoption is, uh, you know, that we could see a hockey stick moment in terms of the adoption of Bitcoin. And, and I'm not arguing with you that people in academia are talking about it. And I'm not arguing with you that Tudor Jones and Novogratz and all these guys are coming around to it and that, you know, Diamond came around to it. I mean, everything that you said is right. It's in pop culture. It's new. It's digital. I mean, you're 100% right about all that stuff. I just think the idea that it's digital and not physical gives it, and, and again, has a relatively limited track record when compared to the track record of gold, gives it way more opportunity for volatility to be overtaken, to be overcome. And, and, and it seems as though a lot of it working out is contingent upon people's confidence in it, very similar to the way that people have confidence in, uh, in fiat. Right. It's, this, uh, so, it's this... so before you, so, so let me say you got a few things there. So on the you had two points there, the digital and confidence. So let me talk about confidence first. So what makes money money is that people use it as money. They have confidence that it's money. 
this is why gold is money because after thousands of years, I know that for, I take gold in a transaction. I'm confident that I can use it next year in a transaction. So it, that's what makes it money, right? It's a store of value. It's got no counterparty risk. Um, it's it's physical, right? It's got 79 electrons orbiting the uh, the atom of, of gold molecules, right? So we know that it's got these properties that make it uniquely gold. In the case of Bitcoin, it is digital, but just like gold, it has unique it is just like gold is number 79 on the periodic table and we use gold as money and not hydrogen or helium or or any other element on the periodic table. Only one, number 79, we use as money, right? Of all the software that's ever been invented for the last you know, 50, 60, 70 years, only one piece of software is used as hard money and that's the Bitcoin software because it has, just like gold, a unique software properties that make it uniquely suitable to be used as hard money and um similar so uh that's what's happening right now and it it, it came into existence in 2009 it was dropped onto the internet and um it at first it was a curiosity and people weren't sure whether it would be useful or what it could be used for and then um it, it's gained acceptance and then also uh, people have tried to attack it and failed people have tried to copy it with altcoins they've all failed 10 years later. Also in the technology space, the iterative process is a lot faster. Okay, you say gold's been around for 5,000 years. That's true, but the iteration of society over 5,000 years has been relatively slow. Like the year 1000 and the year 1500 wasn't terribly different than the year 1000, was it? Because it's like, uh, you know, the Middle Ages and things kind of move around slowly and whatnot. Uh, starting with the information age of the 20th century and now into the 21st century, the rate of iterative of uh, escalation of evolution of change is happening every 18 months, right? Moore's law says that the amount of chip, you know, information you can pack on a chip doubles every 18 months. That's enormously fast. That's where Bitcoin was birthed into the information age, was birthed into the network age. It was hard money of the network age. And so it has attributes of that. It's native to the internet. It's native to the network. Um, and so it's, and, and the entire globe is moving to this completely digital world. Like we're moving away from the physical world. Uh, we're, you know, fracking, oil, the energy industries, and everything associated with those industries are our support, our life support system by central banks because the we've had a demand shock for oil and it's not going to come back. The demand for oil peaked. We're never going to have 90 million barrel a day demand for oil ever again because we're moving away from a hydrocarbon to, uh, intense industries that we were in 50 years ago. And that means we're gonna have more software. Look at the stock market. The software companies are skyrocketing. The cloud, the network, all those companies are moving up in valuation. Um, so all it takes is for, uh, I mean, Square is now worth what, 50, 60 billion? I didn't check recently. Their primary revenue is Bitcoin right now. Uh, Jack Dorsey, I'm pretty sure, is gonna introduce Bitcoin tipping to Twitter so that you can give someone a Satoshi and get paid to be on Twitter. You can only do that with Bitcoin. So that's gonna bring in another gazillion, you know, Satoshis into the mix. Which I will gladly right? accept, by the way. Right, so it's, and <laughs> you just, can't do that with gold. Just you to can't, go, you can't, just, you, I can't send you a penny's worth of gold because it's too expensive. By the time that penny's worth of gold arrives to you, it costs me 10 bucks to move to, that one penny worth of gold. You make a good point in the sense that things are moving away from the physical world and into the digital realm, and I get that. And and I, I hear your point, and I understand your point that Bitcoin is, is native to that. But at the end of the day, 
just like all of the infrastructure that needs to be put into place to create the digital world, okay, the buildings, the servers, you talk about, okay, Square's going to let you tip in Bitcoin. All right, well, Square has a dig- has a physical facility somewhere that houses their computing processor that allows them to do these things. And gold is just the physical equivalent, right? Gold is just, it is the physical okay. hard right. money so what we've, equivalent. What we've, the digital, what we've the, arrived the, to, so what we've arrived to is, I think you made an excellent point, that gold is the physical equivalent to Bitcoin. I agree. No, I said gold is the physical equivalent <laughs> of the buildings and the infrastructure, which is which you know has taken to set up. So you can make two arguments here. One is your argument about Netscape before. I know you were trying to make a commentary about the internet, not about Netscape specifically. And you can make the same argument now that, hey, cryptocurrencies, all right, now they're a widely accepted thing, which I think actually is going to be the case. I think cryptocurrencies are going to be a thing, right? But that doesn't mean that Bitcoin isn't going to go to the way of Netscape Navigator. They're both pieces of software. They were both there at the beginning, and then they were both improved upon. And, and ultimately, they both may fly by the wayside. But the point that I was wrong, trying to make wrong, about wrong. The- No, I have, to, I, have to, I have to jump in there. Netscape was an application that sits on top of the internet protocol. Bitcoin is a protocol. That's the difference. It is the protocol. And all applications will sit on top of the Bitcoin protocol. It's a protocol. That's what makes it. It's not an app. It's not an application. And that's what, that's what, that, that's what we're talking about here. And that's why it's unassailable. That's why it's immutable. That's why it's unconfiscatable. That's why it's gold equivalent. It is the new era that we have started in 2009 with a new protocol that obviates central banks, obviates fiat money, obviates the banking industry as we know it with all their fees, obviates interest rate apartheid as we know it, obviates the need for intermediaries that take all the money and leave millions homeless and broke and penniless and in slums and ghettos. It gets rid of all that. Because it puts hard money into the hands of anybody that wants it to it doesn't, save. It doesn't put anything it hard in anybody's hands. Sovereignty. It doesn't put anything hard into anybody's hands. Well, immutability suggests that you can't, that's, you can't that's say it's hard. putting. You can't say it's putting hard money into people's hands when hard money is widely accepted as that. physical currency. Uh, well, that's where we disagree, and I think that there are your your mindset around this is is different than mine. And I think there are millions of people now that are who are coming around to my way of thinking, and that's where the that's where the debate is. Sure. So, well, there's no way we're going to settle it today. I mean, we have to wait two or three years, and two or three years, we have to see. You know, oh, but, I mean, we we we've come to that point where, you know, I mean, you've you you're I'm not bringing you over the line here. Uh, so that's, but that's all I can, that's all I can say about it. I mean, let's, let's well, talk again. We have is, to give it time now. The thing is too, Max, I don't even need to be brought over the line because the nice thing is you can own them both. You know, nobody prevents you from, uh, from owning Bitcoin. And I do own a little bit of Bitcoin. Um, you know, I own more gold, but you know, n- nothing right now is preventing me from owning both of them. Uh, right. I just- never said not to own gold and I never said that gold was not something to own and silver. Right. Because sure. uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, reasons to own gold and silver. And I own a lot of gold and silver and you can uh, definitely own both. And I encourage they're both instruments for savings, which if you you know, gold, I think gold is a gateway drug to Bitcoin. You know, you start buying gold and you're like, you know what? This saving thing's pretty cool. Like uh, I actually have a bunch of wealth that is hard money and uh, the government and it's not there's no counterparty risk and the bank's not going to seize it. 
right? I, I like this whole thing. What other kinds of hard money can I get into? Hmm, let me check out this Bitcoin thing. Well, okay, I'll go down the rabbit hole. And a lot of people say, wow, but you there, know what, this is, there is, this is equivalent. With Bitcoin, there is counterparty risk in the sense that you rely upon your local power grid for power. You rely upon that to go to a regional station for not, power. Not true. You, re not, you rely upon the guy we, sitting at a... Go ahead. We just established that even if all power goes down, my wealth is still immutably stored. But you on don't the have any access to it. So does it exist at that point? Well, okay. So if you're saying that uh, the, the, the power is shut off forever, that's that, in that case then Bitcoin would be yet less useful than gold. Less? But I how, think would it, that, how would it be useful at all if there's no power? Well, I mean, but I think that the, 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 the probability of that, again, you have to go to extreme levels of improbability, like we're going to start mining gold on asteroids and the price of gold goes to a dollar an ounce because now we're flooded with gold, right? I think that's about as likely as the power being shut off permanently. I, I just don't see that. I, I just don't see that, you know, I don't, I don't think but it, that's it's not. Uh, yeah. And it's not just the power though. It's the entire infrastructure that connects everybody globally. It's, it's, which is run by power. And that power, by the way, is increasingly being sourced from solar power. That's and correct. solar power is now getting, is now cheaper than coal, cheaper than oil, cheaper than gas. And it's almost infinite. It's like Buckminster Fuller wrote about 30 years ago that the amount of energy that hits planet Earth versus what we need to use on planet Earth is a thousand times greater. Sure. If we could only harness that solar power. Well, now solar power is being harnessed and energy is becoming almost to the point of having no cost whatsoever. So um, that is something you got to consider that um, it's entering into a different energy era as well, dominated by solar. So, uh, you, if the if if in fact we're right and fiat money collapses, then the whole nation state as we know it is also going to collapse. So then you're going to have basically much more, you know, tribal tribal arrangements of societies or villages. You know, autocracies, autocracies, essentially self-contained units. But the internet and the and the and the global infrastructure to transact Bitcoin will will survive in a, in an instance where yeah, things well, go you need tribal. Some chips. You need a chips, the satellite dish. You know, I mean, it still works. But you can you can you know you can create a, a scenario uh, on the uh, with on a very low probability or infinitesimal probability that uh, in any situation what that of, of anything, right? I mean, it's called. Uh, you know, uh, you know, argumentative d de minimis or whatever the style is, you know, you're taking it down to a level that, well, you know, that blade of grass outside could blow in one way and, yeah, and, and not, that could set off a anymore, hurricane. Not any more de minimis than the chances of the entire central banking system collapsing. Oh, well, we agree that's, that's happening. There's a high probability of that happening. Yeah, so, and it, but, but, but it's not, but it's not, that's not a, that's, that's, that's almost a guaranteed situation. I'm I, I'm betting uh, that's a 95% dead certainty at this point. Listen, I want to thank you so much for coming on, Max. <laughs> it was no, I'll, I'll, honestly, man. And I'm not people. People have me fucked up about Bitcoin because I'm not like I'm not anti Bitcoin. I'm not anti anything really. I just I like to explore it and I like to talk about it because there are some certain roadblocks that I haven't been able to get myself 
past, some of which I brought up today, other ones I haven't, but, you know, I don't want to go through and continue to beat this horse. I think we got a lot of good stuff out. Um, and like I said, the nice thing is that you can own both. If you choose to own both, you can own both. And, you know, I, I think I've said often, I think Bitcoin's going to go to a million or it's going to go to zero. You know, I, I think it's either going to be a, an absolute raging success or I think uh, it's going to peter out in very short order. And for me, that that risk um, is uh, makes it much more difficult for me to embrace than gold. But, you know, different people, different risk tolerances. And certainly you look at it in a very different way than I do. And I can just tell by um, how you articulated your argument about it. So I just uh, I want to say thank you so much, not only for taking the time to come on today kind of on short notice and offering to to speak to me but also uh for being able to have an open-minded conversation about it and uh i, I really hope that you come back on and we get a chance to speak again oh yeah well like i said your your points are are good points and it's a good discussion the problem i have with people like peter schiff or nuriel rubini or uh, these other guys is that they don't even bother to have a uh, a well you know a conversation. They just categorically dismiss it uh, without any discussion whatsoever. So I mean, I appreciate having a good discussion about it. Yeah, will you uh, will you come on again at some point in the future? I would love to have you back on the podcast, man. Like uh, you know, in a month. I don't see two, why not. Can we catch back up? I think it's a good idea. All right. The universe, like I said, has brought us together, like we said in the in the beginning of the podcast. So I think we I think we gotta embrace that. I'm all I'm all on board. All right. Max Kaiser, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you again, Max. I appreciate it. We'll speak soon. All right, buddy. Talk, catch up with you later. All right, bye-bye. The the one, the only Max Kaiser. What a wonderful idea to have him on the podcast. And uh man, I, I can't wait to just dive balls deep into some of the shit that he's got on the web and just start watching his show. Um, so I want to say thank you to Max and thanks to my listeners who recommended him. And sincerely, I hope you guys all have a lovely weekend. Peace.